Stan. Grunkle Stan. <laughs> Grunkle. <laughs> You're a dork. <laughs> Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 121 for July MMXVI. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Invincible Iron Cast, Classics Edition. Hey kids, do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more. Hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition on iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. 
Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, that's okay, because Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backworld the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Help TBU keep the lights on. Please donate to help Dustin with rising server fees. Your support means your favorite shows will continue airing. Go to thebatmanuniverse.net to learn more and donate today. Well, my guest this month enjoys wearing old man ponytails. He doesn't like whispering in comic shops. It makes him feel uncomfortable. And he doesn't like to get over for people when uh, they're merging from an on-ramp. And the clock is ticking right now because he can only take me for four hours. Please welcome welcome my good friend, Tom Panarese. I don't drive like (laughs) a psycho, Stella. That's your job. No, give me a break. You people, you know, listeners... Answer me this. When someone's coming on a ramp and there's a lane free over to your left, do you not get over for them? That's what I was doing. I do not accommodate for the <laughs> fact that people don't know how to merge. Uh-huh. And if they hit me, it's their fault for failure to yield. Plus, people in Charlottesville cannot drive. But I only have four hours here. so we'll, It is uh, true. I didn't think they were that bad compared to other places. Mm. But anyways. Maryland. Yeah, see? They're a little scary. Those are the worst. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, you're here to talk to Batman. And I guess your last stint on this show was, it wasn't Suicide Squad, was it? It No, it was our our big special, our anniversary special with Prodigal. So welcome back. Thank you. So the big question that I've been asking everyone is, are you Team Dawn or Team Shag? And I actually don't know how you're going to answer. I don't have a horse in this race, Stella. (laughs) But you must choose. Death is not an option. No. This isn't a would you rather. It's just, you know, if we make t-shirts, are you going to buy a Team Dawn t-shirt or are you going to buy a Team Shag t-shirt? I have to buy the (laughs) t-shirt? If you're given a free t-shirt, are you going to go to the box that has the Team Dawn t-shirts or the box that has the Team Shag t-shirts? Um, I'm just going to get the third box, the one that has the uh, the sweater that you oh, knitted God. with Remington on it. <gasps> Remington! Okay, so, I guess that's a so good the, the the Mabel the the knitted by Mabel sweater <laughs> of Remington. Yes, uh, which is a little sneak peek at at what's to come. Now, there's one topic that we thought about discussing over pancakes, but we didn't get to it, and it's the big question of whether or not you and I would have been friends in high school. And I thought maybe this would be a good warm up topic for us before we get into Batman. Sure. <laughs> you go. You start. You start. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I, I have to start by describing my life in high school. And uh, I was sort of a, a nerdy person. I was very dedicated to studies. I had a core group of friends that was smaller, um, mainly in the band crowd because I was in marching band and, and concert band and everything. I was the class 
clown. That was my senior superlative as well. And I, I think I always had sort of dreams or aspirations to be with the cool kids, you know, because I would, there were some really good friends that were there, but I was always sort of on the outskirts there. Comic-wise, I wasn't as into comics. It was sort of like a, a side venture and I wasn't really collecting at that time so that wasn't something that drew me to other people but um, other nerdyism things uh, like I went out you know in the eighth grade sort of way uh, with someone who really liked Star Wars so there's that so from that description do you think we would have been friends I think we would have been siblings I mean (laughs) I'm serious there's like I'm like yeah I'm kind of checking off the boxes as you're describing them and they're lot in common i was you know i was into comics but like i the weird thing comics and friends when i was in high school is i had like one friend two if you counted my friend in florida but like one locally i had like one friend comics and there were other people who like now i see them on facebook and they're like into comics and stuff and i'm like wait where were you but i was very socially awkward in that way. So like, you know, comics were kind of like this thing that I had, but all my friends were into uh, mostly hockey. Mm-hmm. And so we played hockey and it wasn't any sort of organized league. We played street hockey, you know, kind of if you've seen Wayne's World <laughs> clerks or something, it's basically what it was, you know, a bunch of us getting together on a Saturday afternoon and with a, you know, it's it, some in somebody's neighborhood. On rollerblades, but and music, music was big among the group I was friends with, and um, but I always was kind of on the outskirts where there were times when I felt like I fed in, and times when I totally didn't. If you want a really fully detailed account of this, go listen to Pop Culture Affidavit episode fifty, which is about senior year of high school. Okay, but but because I did talk a little bit about this, but there was a sense of like I got along with all a lot of the quote popular people at least the ones who were in the honors classes with me because i was in a lot of honors and ap classes and Mm -hmm. there were a few who treated me like crap but i i really did feel for the most part that you know i I, there was this sense of like i kind of wish i was cooler when i was around those people because you know we were friendly but we weren't like you know i didn't hang out with them on a friday night or anything like that and uh i didn't have much luck with girls up until about my senior year so there was that and and you know my friday nights were let's go rent a movie and sit around and watch movies and i had it's almost like i had friends who fit certain interests of mine like you know i had the friends who i played hockey with and listened to music with although there was that weird sort of pressure to feel like i should be listening to the right music that's why i have several metallica albums because that was the band that most of my friends listened to. And I, to this day, I'm like, well, I, I like the music, but then I'm like, I kind of listened to a lot of that music because they were into it. But then, but I also listened to like Elton John and stuff. So, and Billy Joel. And, uh, and then, um, I don't know. And then I had friends who like, I watched horror movies with and friends who I collected comics with and stuff. But yeah, I was kind of the same way where um, I was, very studious um i got into you know i wanted to get into a good college um at one point i wanted to be a lawyer uh my senior superlative was teacher's pet oh okay um which was kind of a running 
joke. It was it was it came out of my my friend Chris standing up in the middle of class during senior superlative voting and going, "Hey, let's make you teachers pet." I was like, "Yeah, what the hell?" And that was <laughs> kind of the. So it wasn't anything. It was like you know, woohoo. And uh, but I got you know, I did get along with my teachers really well, and I was I was heavy into like activities. So, um, cause I played, I played the piano, but I didn't play the piano in like the band or the jazz ensemble or anything, but mm-hmm. I was into like the, uh, I was president of one of the community service clubs. I was the editor of the newspaper. And so that was my, and I was on the mock trial team. So that was, oh, my, okay. that was my geek route. Mm-hmm. And, um, this topic of conversation came up. I don't remember how it came up, but I've had this conversation with other friends who I'm friends with now who I didn't know back in you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine from work, who's a very good friend of mine, we sort of had this conversation because one of the, we were at lunch. One of the people I work with, um, who probably doesn't listen to this, but I, I will not throw this person, I will not name this person, was going on and on and on about how they were, it was almost like they were talking about um, drinking and, and stupid stuff you did when you were younger. And, you know, I didn't drink, I didn't, go out. I didn't uh, sex, you know, that sort of thing in high school as much as like other people did. And it was kind of funny to listen to person, this person talk because we were walking away from the conversation and I turned to my friend and I said to her, well, now we know how cool this person was in high school. Like, you know, my friend was like, yeah, like this was totally not me. And I said, me neither. We're talking and I just kind of looked at her. I said, I think we would have been friends if we had gone to high school together and she was like, yeah, because we would have never, ever gone to high school together anyway. Cause there's like eight years age difference between the two of us. And you and I are, I'm like, like what, like nine years older than you. Um, but had the space time continuum been different or this were an alternate earth, this is a comic book podcast. So it's possible. It is. Um, I think we would have, because I think by virtue of the fact that we were in the same, we would have been in the same classes. Mm-hmm. And I think we would have then ended up running in a lot of the same circles. Yeah. Isn't that sad, though, that you only find these people, like, after the fact? Yeah, but at the same time, at least you find these people after the fact. That's true. You know, like, mm-hmm. it, it could be – I could be one of those people. Like, I didn't attend my high school reunion last year because I was unable to. We were going on – it was, like, right – when I was going on vacation. So I was like physically not able to make it up to New York for the Mm -hmm. reunion. And then there were parts of it where I was, where I was kind of encountering people who did give me a hard time in high school where they were going. And I was kind of like, well, I kind of don't want to at this point, you know, it was like, whatever I can, I'm I'm over it, but I don't sit there and I'm not one of these people who's ultimately constantly bitter over stuff from 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'll joke about it sometimes, but, but you know, the stuff you get stuff that you're over and, and yeah, it's 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 kind of nice to have these sort of nerd circles. Um, even though sometimes my fellow nerds can get just as annoying um, and just as uppity, and just. <laughs> but then again, I avoid most conversations about Batman versus Superman. So yeah, it's probably for the best. Yeah. Oh God, yes, it is for the best. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Though. You know, oh, I do. Uh, we yeah. can we can definitely work each other's nerves. But no, I, I like the fact that it's. It's really cool that that I found this sort of group of tribe of people that that has the same interest as I do. So I don't feel like I'm, you know, the only people I talk to comics to are the guy behind the counter of the comic store, you know, that sort of stuff. So 
I once got hit in the uh, in the head with a hockey puck. <laughs> I, I thought I would non sequitur there. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, used to... <laughs> I played goalie, so I got I got there hit go. several All times. All the time, yeah, <laughs> several times. That's a that's the name of a boy band. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, I used to play. I was a tomboy growing up, so I used to. Uh, my brother, he was very kind and let me play with them, and I was actually really good, you know, for being eight years younger than him. Mm-hmm. But I remember playing street hockey, you know, like hit me smack in the forehead, and then it was like the seasons would change kind of thing on my forehead, except the colors would change. It was very large. <laughs> At least it was after uh, pictures, which I'm sure my mother was grateful for. Well, one other question as a, as a sort of warm-up. Sure. Uh, I was a little disturbed by something you had said in a recent recording that we had done. We, we If you recall, we did a total justice, kind of hopped on, you know? <laughs> and uh, I, while we were doing this... I still this, haven't listened to that yet, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fun. I listened to it on my way back from New York City. So as I was listening, you were sort of shaming me for liking Batman and Robin and Sir... We here on the Backroll the Oracle podcast really love Batman and Robin, and I need to know what's your beef against it. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing. It. I, the only okay, so I saw that in the theater. All right, and I went in. Now I went. I saw all four of the original Batman films from the eighties and nineties in the movie theater. I saw, you know, Batman, Batman Returns Forever, and there was a sort of diminishing return on them. Even as a teenager, I knew that. Like, I remember going to see Batman Forever the week when it came out in the theater, the weekend, the opening weekend. I think my friends and I went to just an afternoon show. And I remember standing up at the end of the movie and saying out loud, like, I waited three years for this because I I didn't. And, and on subsequent viewings, I've come around to see Batman Forever as a little bit better of a movie than I thought it was when it first came out. I will never forgive it for unleashing that godforsaken seal song on the world. (laughs) But so Batman and Robin starts to, you know, it's getting made and you know, a movie at least back then when they were overhyping the casting, you knew that the movie probably wasn't going to be as good. You know, I mean, now they've kind of, We've kind of come back around with that where it really doesn't matter because we've had enough Marvel movies where, like, they've cast this person as this character. And you're like, ooh. But um, they were, like, hyping up Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl, which I had no I had no problem with her um, as uh, as an actress. I was – I actually like Clueless a lot. Yeah. Um, I love that movie. It's my, one of my wife's favorite movies. I was not a big fan of the her Aerosmith video phase. But then again, I wasn't a big fan of those Aerosmith songs. So – Chris O'Donnell as Robin had been had been decent, and but then the whole Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mister Freeze, I was like, I don't know. And I went and saw this movie with my friend Harris, who was my my partner in crime when it came to comic books, sci-fi, comic book movies, these sorts of things. He was the one I went to see two of the three Lord of the Rings movies with. Um, the summer after I graduated college, he was up in Boston, and we went. I went up to visit him for a weekend. We went and saw Star Wars. We went and saw, you know, so it was basically he was the one I was in these movies with. I didn't. I don't want my money back because we spent the entire time in the movie theater throwing insults at the screen. It was basically there were like maybe three other people in the movie theater with us, and we turned it into our own episode of Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand. So there was that aspect of it where it was just a good movie to make fun of, but it's not a very good movie. I think it's an amazing movie. Uh, 
oh, it's just not good. I don't know why you say that. I mean, you've got sort of this this tension and strife between Batman and Robin, which is you know true to comic book form, and then you got kind of got some romance between Barbara Wilson, whoever she is, and Dick Grayson, and you know you throw in a femme fatale with Poison Ivy, and you just have a good recipe for an amazing film. Did you ignore <laughs> the part where oh, the boy. script is terrible? Uh huh. And Arnold Schwarzenegger speaks only in puns. Did you did did you block that out of your mind? I mean, and I, I'm coming as somebody who, out of the three Nolan films, only really liked Batman Begins. I thought The Dark Knight Rises was overblown and pretentious, and I thought The Dark Knight was overhyped. And I know that's like they're gonna kick me off of Batman <laughs> forever for saying that. But I like I had I didn't see now. Granted, I only I saw Batman Begins. I really like Batman Begins, but then I saw The Dark Knight, and, and I saw The Dark Knight on DVD like after everything had you know after it come out, and there was all this hype, and I was like, they were hyping up Ledger's Joker and everything. I'm like, this isn't as good as everybody says it is, and in fact, I caught part of uh, I caught maybe about half an hour of of uh, the '89 Batman film on cable about a week ago. I was just watching it because it was there's nothing on. I really like Nicholson's Joker more than Ledger's. I mean, so so I, this is not so my criticism is Bat- Batman and Robin is not coming from somebody who's like you know worships at the feet of the Nolan films because I actually don't think they're as good as people say they are. But yeah, I just the, the script's terrible. It's it's a terrible movie, but at least it's a kind of a good bad movie. It's campy in the way that like. It's the showgirls of superhero movies. Well, I mean, such a great quote, like, what killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. Don't you think those are just clever? No. <laughs> when, when, I, uh, when, I, when I turn to my friend yeah? and say, take two of these and call me in the morning, about two seconds mm-hmm. before Schwarzenegger says, Take two of these and call me in the morning. Oh, and then the two of us look at each other and go, "Uh, no, I just no." <sighs> well, it doesn't now. Gra- granted, it did not destroy the character for me. It it, it just I just thought the movie sucked. <laughs> well, I have fond memories of it. Fond, fond memories, and even still, I think Redbird, you know, pops up, and I think about shutting down Redbird and Robin yelling at him. <laughs> it's everybody's got every look everybody's got their thing yeah there are like there are people who love the killing in fact the other day oh, somebody no. somebody i know from high school was posting how psyched he was for the killing joke and i was like i don't like this thing i've never liked it i didn't like it when i first read it and i don't like it now and he's like well it was so much darker than everything else that was coming up at then i said and i was just kind of like you do you like I yeah. think you're wrong. There's like a million reasons why we don't need an animated version of the killing joke, but you know, everybody's got their thing. Yeah. So, and also my opinion on movies, take it as you will. You should see some of the movies I own still own on VHS. It's, it's not like I'm watching true faux films on a regular basis or anything like that. Like you, I watched, John Hughes movies. 
<laughs> so, I do know that about you. Yeah. You know, and, and, and movies with John, like 80s movies with John Cusack in them. I own on VHS a copy of the movie Secret Admirer. And what about Teen Witch? Top that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I reviewed, you ever hear of Airborne? It sounds familiar. It's like a rollerblading movie from the early 90s. It's pretty awful. I'm, but I really not, watch these things. There's <clears throat> one that was from the Disney Channel. I can't remember what that's called. That's not what that is, though, is it? It wasn't a Disney film, was it? No, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Wow. I should look that up. There, there's two reasons to watch it. One is that it has Jack Black and Seth Green Oh wow! In it, like it playing supporting cast members. Seth Green is the bridge between the '80s teen movies and the '90s teen movies because he's in, he's in uh, one of my oh, yeah, can't buy me love, can't buy me love. I mean, so I love that movie. My taste in movies has always been in question, anyway. So, you know, and like I said, I don't like, I don't hate them. I just, I'm just not. I don't think they're as great as everybody else says. So again, you can call my taste in movies into question. Okay. That's just me reassuring you that that uh, maybe it's that okay. Your your yeah that your your love for uh, Batman and Robin yeah. is you okay. Know, you're allowed to like that movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you it's don't immortalized. need my approval, but you don't need my approval. For it's it. true. I mean, it's immortalized, uh, you know, in the BTO reels by having a commentary. So I did listen. I that was the last time I've seen that movie twice. The first time in the theater and the second time I rented it and watched it with your commentary. This wow. Times I've ever seen that movie. You did not convince me that movie's any good. <laughs> I did watch the movie with your commentary. Oh, well, I guess we can take that as a victory. Yeah. Oh, well, the reason why Tom is on here is no, not to talk about our likes and dislikes and pop culture and things, but to talk about what could be considered a crucial storyline in Batman's history in the 90s. I guess we'll either agree with that or say no. I disagree with that by the end of this. But we're going to be talking Batman Contagion. And Oracle pops up, you know, as Oracle does, helping out, giving some information in maybe three issues, I think. But we're going to talk about the the storyline as a whole. And now I give it over to Tom, who's going to take lead on this particular part. Okay. So the Contagion storyline ran in the following issues in the following order. And they were they had a border around them that was – I think it was like all skulls and bones and, mm-hmm. and Order of St. Dumas symbols or something uh, with a number up in the right-hand corner. So you there was a specific reading order and, and they indicated that. Batman Shadow of the Bat number 48 – Detective Comics number 695, Robin number 27, Catwoman number 31, Azrael number 15, Batman number 529, Batman Shadow of the Bat number 49, Detective Comics number 696, Batman Chronicles number 4, Catwoman 32, Azrael number 16, and Robin number 28. Uh, The Nightwing ongoing series had not started at this point, which is why there's no Nightwing issue. Uh, Although there would be in later later crossovers uh, Mm -hmm. here and there. Well, I did own all of the individual issues. I bought them as they came out. Um, I sold them years ago. I replaced them with the trade paperback, the first edition, which which came out in 1996. It has this really cool cover um, with a biohazard symbol on the front. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go through the whole story here instead of like you know doing individual issues. I'm just going to do one big summary. And I'm going to list the creative team, of which there are many people, as they are listed on the inside cover of that trade paperback. It's a lot of names, so bear with me. Our writers are Chuck Dixon, Alan Grant, Dennis O'Neill, Doug Mench, and Christopher Priest. Our pencilers are Vince 
Giordano, Dick Giordano, Barry Kitson, Mike Waringo, Jim Ballant, Tommy Lee Edwards, Kelly Jones, Graham Nolan, Frank Fosco, and Matt Haley. Inkers, Stan Wach, Woach, Scott Hanna, Ray McCarthy, James Pasco, Bob Smith, John Beatty, Mike Sellers. Colorist, Demetrius Basukas, Pamela Rambo, Adrian Roy, Buzz Setzer, Gloria Vasquez, Ian Laughlin, and James Sinclair. Color separations, Android images, graphic color works, and digital hellfire. Letterers, John Costanza, Ken Brusniak, Albert de Guzman, Tim Harkins, Bill Oakley, and Todd Klein. Assistant editors were Chuck Kim, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, and Darren Vincenzo. Editors were Scott Peterson, no, not that one, Archie Goodwin, and Dennis O'Neill, who was also the Batman group editor. Batman was created by Bob Keane. So here we go. We open with a videotape that shows something happening at the sanctum of the Order of St. Dumas in Africa. In that disaster, someone who looks like he is infected with something smashing up a laboratory using a sledgehammer. How he got a sledgehammer into a laboratory is beyond me, well, but we'll just go with it. Three men in biohazard suits come in, and they before they can subdue him, he smashes one and slashes the suit of another. The infected man is shot and killed, and the person whose suit was torn kills himself before he can be the victim of whatever experiments the Order has been conducting. Adriel then comes on the screen and says, The apocalypse phylovirus kills swiftly and surely it is unstoppable, before going on to say that whomever gave him the tape has the virus and he's headed for Gotham City. Azrael does not know who this man is, and he tells Robin that this is a puzzle that they have to solve. That plane lands. It's a private plane whose prime passenger is a Mr. Maris, and over at the Gotham City Police Department, Andrew Howe begins his first day on the job as Gotham's new police commissioner, replacing the recently fired Sarah Essen Gordon. This annoys Batman. He has Robin track flights from Africa while he looks up details on the virus, which is a strain of Ebola. Batman heads to a military lab while Maris arrives at his home in Babylon Towers, a huge apartment high-rise for the filthy rich that is well-secured, almost like a fortress. Maris knows that the plague, which has now gotten the nickname The Clench, and that's basically what I'm, how I'm going to refer to it as for the rest of the summary, is on its way to Gotham and keeps sneezing so much that it's obvious to us, well, that he's got The Clench. Batman learns all about The Clench from General Derwent, who is in charge of the military facility, and we as a reader get all of the biological specs of the virus. Derwent is near death because of an accidental tear in a biohazard suit that allowed him to become infected. Meanwhile, Maris tells the resident of Babylon Towers that they need to literally turn the place into a fortress if any of them are going to survive. They agree to do so. They lay off pretty much all of the staff. Maris's helicopter pilot is among them, and he heads home with a sneeze, wishing that he hopes he doesn't have Maris's cold. Uh-oh. Because he does. Later on, we'll see him and his family dying, being the people who spread the virus beyond the walls of Babylon Towers. Batman eludes the military facility's security. Both he and Robin make their way to Babylon Towers while Maris's condition deteriorates, and the residents realize that they have locked themselves in with the virus instead of locking themselves away from it. Batman and Robin's eavesdrop on Maris telling a fellow resident that there isn't a cure, but there is some hope because there was an outbreak in Greenland that had one survivor. Robin has Oracle lock, look up the outbreak in Greenland, and she reads the very gory details of what the clench does to people and what happened there. She then asks Robin why he wanted to know about it, and Tim says, well, it's already started in Gotham. She tells them that the man is Kendall Stewart, his last known address with Ronto. Meanwhile, the residents of Babylon Towers pull their money together, and they raise $5 million members of Gotham's underworld. 
Uh, the person who brings him in will get the money so they can use his blood to create a vaccine. Among those interested is, of course, the penguin. And as Robin arrives at Stewart's address in Toronto, he sees Catwoman. Catwoman and Robin fight at first, but then they agree to work together, much to the chagrin of Alfred, who's along for the ride with Tim, as he does. Batman confronts the Penguin, who sent a guy named Mr. Longshadow, a.k.a. Tracker, to Canada to track down Stuart, eh? While we see the virus continuing to spread throughout the city, including to uh, Renee Montoya's boyfriend. That's right, I Mm. said boyfriend. Yep. The military shows up at Gotham General to quarantine the hospital, which makes the press curious. Back in Toronto, Catwoman changes into a sexy white snow outfit designed by Jim Balin, as opposed to the sexy purple outfit designed uh. by Jim Balin. And she and Robin head for the Yukon, because you can take a virus to water and can't make a drink. I don't know. That's a bad joke. Batman then returns to Asriel for help. He asks him to help keep an eye on Robin. The governor calls the police commissioner, who's in the middle of getting fitted for an an ostentatious dress uniform to tell him that they're going to close off and quarantine the city as best they can. This alerts the press who wonders what is going on. Meanwhile, Robin and Catwoman arrive in the Yukon. They find Mr. Stewart, but they also find the guy that the penguin hired tracker. And this looks like they're going to be killed when Azrael bursts into the cabin. This then leads to the cabin burning down and some bond villains on skis show up and start shooting at everyone. And I'm not kidding when I say Bond villains on skis because this is right out of a James Bond movie. I want to see either For Your Eyes Only or The Spy Who Loved Me. It's one of those. And World is Not Enough. There's some skiing too. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Bond villains on skis. So we get a really great chase scene through the woods on snowmobiles and skis. Meanwhile, Batman goes to Jim Gordon, hoping that maybe he can help in some way because the current Commissioner Howe is, well, he's an incompetent boob. And he's going to doom the city. Batman needs help because he isn't sure how to fight a disease. Then he leaves as Jim is thinking because, well, that's what Batman does. The fight in the Yukon continues. It seems that the guys on skis don't want to get the money for Stuart. They want Stuart dead. Azra tries to find out who wants Stuart dead, but they swallow the cyanide capsules before they will talk because that's what villains like that do. They do succeed in killing Stuart. However, Robin manages to get a blood sample from him, and Stuart tells Catwoman... Azriel and Tracker that there are two other survivors as another Skywalker and dies. Oh, no. Robin heads back to Gotham where he expresses his disappointment that Batman asked John Paul to help. Batman says that he's found someone else to help and we see Nightwing in the background. Azriel and Catwoman decide to hunt down the other survivors. Meanwhile, Matoya and Bullock break into her boyfriend. That's right. I said boyfriend's apartment <laughs> to find him dead. You treat me like your boyfriend. In the Yukon, Asriel reads Stewart's journal and finds out that the names of the two people they're looking for are Fong, who's a gangster from Hong Kong, and Lenore? Lenore? Yeah. A young woman. Asriel calls Oracle, whose hair has gone from a sensible short haircut, yeah. as we saw previous, to obvious prep for her Starfire cosplay at the Gotham okay. Comic Con and Never. asks for information on Fong. She says she'll get back to him, and then Tracker comes and goes after Catwoman and Azrael. They fight, but then Catwoman yells in both Azrael and Tracker, and Tracker goes to work with them, and they find so they can find this guy. 
so at least he can get some of the money that's being offered. They're headed for San Francisco. This is where Fong currently is. He's dressed like Liu Kang from Mortal Kombat, and he's ranting about how immortal he is because he survived the plague. On their way to San Francisco, Azrael consults with his friend Lily, because it, which is spelled L-I-L-H-Y, but I'm just going to say Lily, because he thinks that the Order of St. Dumas is behind the plague, something that is a pretty good deduction, although we'll find out the truth in a future crossover. On Fong's boat, where he has been cutting himself, because when you're immortal, that's what you do, I guess. And then they begin fighting a bunch of Fong's goons and other henchmen. They beat all of them. They find Fong in a huge display of immortality. Decides to slash his own throat because, well, why not, right? And he promptly dies. Asriel does manage to get blood back to Gotham. Batman manages makes a vaccine. He gives it to Poison Ivy to take into Babylon Towers because she's probably immune to the virus because of all the various poisons and things running through her veins. And mm-hmm. she, she, I think she proves that she basically is. There's also riots in Gotham around Babylon Towers. And honestly, it's hard to read because I hate Kelly Jones's art. Although there's some good action where Robin Nightwing and the Huntress try to quell the riot. Inside Babylon Tires, they're going like full Caligula or something. And then Ivy arrives and offers the vaccine to the highest bidder. Batman helps disperse the rioters and he and his team fight some crime and try to keep order while Ivy sprays people with the vaccine as they shower her with riches. So she just starts kissing people. Yep. Jim Gordon shows up on the streets. In fact, I don't think Sarah's in this at all. She is not. Um, he shows up in the streets. He starts leading some police while Batman heads into the towers to confront Ivy. Meanwhile, Tim's eye starts bleeding. We mm-hmm. see that he's infected. Gordon and Batman take down Poison Ivy while Nightwing rushes to rob Robin to the Batcave and Alfred hooks him up to a hospital bed in IV. Batman and Gordon fight their way out of Babylon Towers with the conscious, unconscious Ivy while the National Guard is sent in to help restore order to the city. Meanwhile, Catwoman, having hit redial on a phone that Azrael used, manages to call Oracle. Babs has now ditched the Cory wig for her more sensible hair. Okay. She looks up the whereabouts of Lenore Way, who is the Inuit woman who was the other survivor of the Greenland outbreak. It's now basically a race against time for everyone. Robin's infected. Gotham is in chaos. And even the mayor has a virus. There is a brief interlude where Huntress finds one of her students is sick and dying from the virus, followed by a fever dream where Tim finds out that both his dad and Ariana know he's Robin and his mom's still alive. But then we head back to reality and to Miami, where Catwoman is hot on the trail of the Noor, who has fallen in with a few bad people and winds up being kidnapped by some drug dealers. Use her and flies her back to Gotham, but not before shoving the main drug dealer in a in a tumble dryer, which is a really funny scene. Uh, they are met at the barriers, surrounded by Gotham by Tracker, whom Catwoman takes out before taking Lenore to Batman and Nightwing. All seems for naught, by the way, because Batman says that the blood of survivors is not good for a vaccine. Back home, I guess, Azrael recognizes a symbol within the genetic code of the virus that reminds him of the Order of St. Dumas. At the same time, the Order has one of their members and is interrogating him because he is the one who set the virus loose in Greenland and then infected Maris, although he didn't know that, and set it loose in Gotham. He then sent people to kill Stuart. This Order has the guy killed. Azrael's friend gets a bunch of books together, next to the Order of St. Dumas, that had been provided to them by a benefactress named Talia. Now, who could that be? Uh, and Azrael and his friends begin deciphering the texts. The Order of St. Dumas sends the villain Laha after Azrael. Uh, and this is a guy who I think goes like all the way back to Batman, sort of Azrael, from what I can recall. He sends him after Azrael to stop him from helping Gotham. Azrael has the information they need. He defeats her, causing Laha to run. And then he gets into Gotham, arriving in Gotham Medical Center with the formula for a cure. Meanwhile, Nightwing 
heads down to the Batcave to check on Robin, and he finds an empty bed. Robin, it seems, is dead. Psych, he's alive. Alfred was having some fun with Dick. And everything is okay because the vaccine work in Gotham is saved. Not only that, but Mayor Kroll, who had lost the election and was going to be leaving office anyway, is replaced immediately with the new mayor. Jim Gordon gets his job back. Tim then goes out to handle a hostage situation. And while he's there, he discovers he's a little too weak to be doing anything heroic. But thankfully, Catwoman is there to help him. That situation is resolved. And as Tim notes, life in Gotham, as it is, goes on. Wow. Kudos to you, sir. Thank you. Except for those Corey jokes. I didn't appreciate them. Well, that's why I put them there. <laughs> yeah. I've... How long have we known each other? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, so where, where to begin? Yeah. You go ahead. Okay. Well, I guess like the, the big question for me when I was thinking about this is how does this crossover or story as a whole compare to others that I have read and as I've been catching up to to Batman's history and everything and is it as impactful so I guess I'll I'll put that question out there and I'll go first so as I once I finished it and my trade I should say that I got the newest one that came out in 2016 okay and it collects everything that Tom had been talking about and it also has two more issues of Robin and three issues of Shadow of the Bat. So it's sort of, I guess, interstitial stories, but leading up to the next, uh, which will be Legacy, is going to be the next crossover. So I'll just say that. But those didn't really have any impact on, on the previous story. So when I finished it, finally, I sort of sat back and I thought to myself, I actually didn't overall enjoy this as much as I had, you know, the Nightfall, Night's End uh, uh-huh. Knight's Quest, that trilogy. And I'm not sure why. I, I feel like maybe it's because, well, we just got Batman back, it seems. Well, Bruce Wayne back as Batman. Yeah. And it seemed like such a huge, like all of a sudden he's in a, yet another huge storyline. And I wondered if maybe it would have been better to like sort of settle him down and get his accounts in order before he goes off and does this. And then you have two, I, I think it was a little strange to have Catwoman and Asriel. They turned out to be, I guess, bigger players in the story as a whole. Yeah. But when you think about, you know, a big crossover like this, those aren't necessarily the two characters that you would bring in. And yeah, she was in, you know, Nightfall and, and all of that stuff. And then Asriel, maybe it's, it was just a way to, to bring him into the story. But I just didn't enjoy it as much. Uh, maybe it, it didn't seem as, like, super heroic as I'm used to. Uh, and it was more, you know, it is fighting against a plague, which is something that you can't necessarily fight against. Mm-hmm. Whereas you had all these villains that were coming in and Bane and everything like that. For 
I guess the the Batman character, I think besides certain details, which which I definitely want to bring up, I don't know if this is as mandatory a reading as maybe like Nightfall would be. And I'm really enjoying catching up and reading in the 90s with Batman. But this one, I feel like in comparison, is not as important. Yeah, I, I can I can see that because compared because you've got this, you have Legacy. Then they, I think, then they actually put a moratorium on crossovers for a little while. Okay, I'm sure That's somebody. Th- this is a Batman podcast, so somebody will come and correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but That's fine. I'm pretty sure that between Legacy and Cataclysm, there really isn't a crossover. It's it's a lot of um of stuff staying within its own title. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you get that what you were just talking about, like Batman kind of doing his thing. Yeah, Cataclysm is more important, like because Cataclysm helps set up No Man's Land. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that this I'm trying to think of, like you know, what long lasting effects does this have aside from leading into Legacy? Which honestly, I know I read twenty years ago or however it was. I I don't remember a single thing about. That I read it like once, I think, and then didn't read it again. And and the trade is like impossible to come by. I found it cheap, is. which dri- is driving me crazy. And um, I remember it was a rematch with Bane, and Rasha Ghoul was involved. But other than that, I, I don't. I don't think I didn't hate it when it first came out. I just don't think I had much of an opinion about it when it first. It was just kind of one of those things where like I read this, and I think by then I was starting to have like. Batman crossover event fatigue mm-hmm. in the same way that in the same way that happened to me with the X-Men about maybe five years prior. I dropped the X-Men entirely, but with Batman I was able to keep, you know, Detective and Robin, which were the two titles I was reading at the time, mm-hmm. and and not have to read Batman or any other stuff. And it was so it was kind of cool to have a couple of years. But yeah, there's two long lasting effects I think here. One is that Jim Gordon gets his job back. Yep. Which is which is important. So that's like a subplot thing. The other mm-hmm. thing is, I think it helps further along the idea that we would really have solidified in the late '90s of the Batman family. Mm-hmm. That you know you have all of these characters working together with you know because Nightwing had within the last year had just been brought back into the fold, and you have Batman and Robin and you, Catwoman's title. I don't know. I could probably we could probably look up sales number to see whether or not it was actually doing well at the time. But I know that Catwoman, when the title launched, was doing very well. That had that title lasted for quite a while. Asriel, I just wonder if this bringing his title into this was just a way to sell that book. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's kind of what crossovers do, right? But yeah. So, but as a story, I really like it mm-hmm. um, because it's really of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, I was thinking about this, um, you had, you had texted me and asked me if I'd ever seen the movie contagion, which I haven't, um, which I, it's, it's on my, it's in my Netflix queue somewhere. I just haven't gotten to it yet, but I did, I think I texted you back and said, but I have seen outbreak, right? which came out in 95 and, uh, with Dustin Hoffman, Rene Russo, the monkey from friends. Oh no. Um, no. Yeah. That's the monkey oh, in no. outbreak. Marcel. To me, so I was thinking about that. I was, I was thinking, like, what's the inspiration for this? And if you think about a lot of the movies in the late '90s, a lot of the, like the summer tentpole blockbuster ones, mm-hmm. a lot of them are disaster movies. You have um, Outbreak. You have Volcano. What's the one? The other one? Twister. Uh, Dante's Peak, which was another volcano movie. Armageddon. 
to an extent, Independence Day. Although that was an alien invasion, it wasn't a disaster movie. But, you know, it was just yeah. you had all these movies where some sort of mass destruction happened mm-hmm. in some way or another. Um, but right down to, like, the really, really stupid ones, like The Core with Hilary Swank, which was a god-awful movie. And then, like, it kind of wraps itself up. The kind of thing – it 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 wound itself out with, like, The Day After Tomorrow in 2012 because of that, that yeah. genre. But – these were like huge movies, you know, back in the the mid to late nineties, and and not only that, so Outbreak was ninety five, and then there's another book that comes out in about ninety, I think it's ninety four, ninety five, called The Hot Zone, and The Hot Zone is a nonfiction book, and it's about the Ebola virus and mm-hmm. about the how we research and contain and contain possible outbreaks, and it actually is pretty scary in certain parts because of like how close we have come to outbreaks of Ebola and what Ebola does to people. And I saw a lot of this, that in this book. And um, that's why I like it. And I like the fact that Batman wasn't fighting a supervillain for once Mm -hmm. because I think that gets very tired. I mean, they, they did in this, in this era, if you noticed, they had a tendency to like use the Joker sparingly Mm -hmm. in a good way. Whereas like, I I don't you know whereas like there was a point a few years ago where the Joker was like always around, and uh, they they had certain villains they used you know here and there from time to time. But um, I don't know this. It was just for me. It was this was an interesting way to to way to go about have Batman fight something that he can't possibly beat. If we want to get more specific with the story, I do have issues with certain things though. So. Yeah, we probably will. I, I guess I I wonder though because. As you watch, you kind of see him get down on himself a little bit. You know, what can I possibly do? I can't save these people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's hard when he, he was already in that place prior. I mean, physically and mentally and emotionally once Bane broke his back. And so I guess, you know, I, I wish it were a supervillain, if only to, like, build him up a little bit instead of, like, continually pound him down. But with the difference between him and Bane, that and Bane is, like, I feel like this is more of a, I'm faced with a problem that seems unsolvable. Mm-hmm. Like he's frustrated because he usually has the answers. And this is something that like, you know, he has to, it's forcing him to think in a different way. This is, this is out of his um, comfort zone. And uh, it's not a villain outsmarting him. It's, it's this thing that, that, you know, he wants to save his city, so he's frustrated. So it's it's a test of character, but it's a test of character where he's like he doesn't he doesn't have all the answers, which is refreshing mm-hmm. for a Batman that was close to becoming, you know, the I had all this figured out three weeks ago and now it's time to, you know, and I've been hiding my plan for you. Also, he confides in Jim Gordon mm-hmm. with this. And I think right. that's important too, because that's one of the things I love about the post crisis Batman was his his really close relationship with Jim Gordon as a friend and a confidant. Whereas he had that pre-crisis, but not to the degree that like Frank Miller establishes and then other people build on. Right. So, and I'll give Frank Miller the credit for that because it's, (laughs) it's, it's one of my favorite things about Batman year one is Jim Gordon Mm -hmm. and, and the subsequent relationship with Batman that came out of it. I, I think that was just one of the changes that he made to the mythos that was just so great. Yeah, and you had mentioned, you know, starting up this Batman family, sort of giving that a cohesive mm-hmm. idea, as well as, you know, bringing in people that necessarily wouldn't be a part of that, uh, yeah. Huntress, which I do want to talk about that relationship. Mm-hmm. But I think it, this story also starts to get back to a more 
stable status quo in Gotham City because the administration has really been out of whack, I think, with Mayor Grohl. Yeah. And now you have Mayor Grange, who seems like a pretty stand-up woman, as far as I know right now. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you had Jim who left because he didn't trust Batman anymore because he knew that someone else was Batman. It wasn't his Batman. Yeah. And then he and his wife have been having problems because she stepped into that place and then she was fired. So now that we have a decent mayor and Jim is back and then there was that good interaction between, I think it was in the storyline, between the two of them where Jim says, you're like the original or you're him, right? Yeah. And Batman says, yeah. So I, I think that's like a good thing that we're looking forward to Gotham City, you know, or like a better, a brighter mm-hmm. future as, as bright as Gotham can be compared to like all the dark stuff that had happened with Bane. So at least there's there's some hope there. But, you know, still the dangling plot line is that you don't know who started this whole thing. Yeah. So that, of course, will also carry on. And I don't know, but I can only assume that it's Roz slash Rachel. Cool. I, I, that's the feeling I get from just reading quick summaries of Legacy that he yeah. ha, he has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I I I want to see if I can get that entry just to reread it. Yeah. Or something because I really don't remember it. It's <laughs> and, a, yeah. And and not in a good or a bad way. I just don't remember the story. Mm-hmm. And it, they're not reprinting it. It doesn't seem like it, yeah, because I got this because it was reprinting. Yeah. And, yeah, I looked online, and, like, 80 or $90 is, like, what you're no. going to pay to get that trade, yeah. which is really unfortunate. And those are – and honestly, which is ridiculous because those are 50-cent bin books. Yeah. But, like, they've reprinted – just to print ahead, they've re- reprinted Cataclysm, Aftershock, and then all of No Man's Land. Although these don't really tie into that at all. These are just Gotham City having yet another problem. So that mm-hmm. when Cataclysm and all that come around, it's like, wow, how much more punishment can this city take? Yeah, very true. So. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the Hunters-Batman sure. relationship. I think that would be interesting uh, because he's very cold to her. Mm-hmm. Doesn't trust her at all. Doesn't like her methods, which is certainly understandable, but uses her, I think, as a tool just because I think he needs another body. And, and it seems like she does step down her violence level a little bit. <laughs> like she's using concussives more than yeah. fatal things. But this is interesting just thinking ahead to what goes on with No Man's Land mm-hmm. um, and, and what she does there. So any thoughts on on this particular relationship and how it's portrayed in this story? I've always liked the Helena Bertinelli Huntress. Mm-hmm. I liked her motivation. Yep. Um, there's a Punisher vibe to her. Yeah, but she very doesn't, true. She doesn't go as over the edge as Frank Castle does. Mm-hmm. I like her costume in this phase. Um, I also like the the costume that I hated of hers was the one that had the cutoff shirt with the bare midriff. Oh yeah, I just never found that to be practical. Yeah, (laughs) but her family's mafia. She's very Mm -hmm. Italian, and the the way they weave the sort of Catholicism of her character into it sometimes I thought was is a really nice touch because um, she is of the vein of the hardcore old school Italian Roman Catholic mm-hmm. that I grew up around um, in many ways and had many of them in my family because I'm Italian, um, although I'm not Catholic. Uh, but I've always liked her because I've, I've liked her that she she had this sort of 
she had an edginess to her and she did not feel that Batman was like she was never going to let Batman be her boss. Mm-hmm. And the, the, one of the issues I have with Batman of this era um, is that this is before he be, goes completely over to the I know everything, whatever. But Batman's relationship with women heroes, except for maybe Wonder Woman, is never good. Mm. He, It's like with him, with the Huntress and the Spoiler, because I don't have a lot of experience with Batman and Batgirl – to be honest, aside from what you've what you've um, written, and even in post crisis, there's not so much. He seems to have a lot of respect for Barbara, mm-hmm. but isn't it? And maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here, but it, to me, it seems like every time I turn around, he's mansplaining to either Helena or Stephanie. And I think this is also symptomatic of like the Silver Age too. I think that maybe because you know when Barbara first like that respect wasn't really there, and it really seemed like it's a boys' game what they're playing. So yeah. like girls need to stay out. But what what is that uh, from the Little Rascals, the He Men Woman Haters? Yeah. So so I I can totally see that, and I think perhaps that is one of the reasons why. He doesn't like Huntress, and I think maybe the reason why he does respect Oracle is because she's been in the game so long, and she's endured so much. So I think she sort of underwent the trials of fire and passed, and and so he's allowed it. But I think you have to do a lot to earn his respect, and perhaps more being female than male. Yeah, and I think Tim Tim looks up to Bruce so much that he doesn't want to question that. But he'll work because, like, he does have a tendency to treat Stephanie, at least at the beginning, like crap. Yeah. It's not as bad as the way Dick t- treats Betty Kane, which we <laughs> talked about. Oh, yeah. Like, yes, yes, we did there. talk about <laughs> yeah. But But he is, he's very dismissive of Stephanie. Mm-hmm. With, with Helena, I always got the sense that Tim respected her, but was also, like, very wary of her because Batman didn't approve. Yeah. And that's less of a. That's less sexism and more of a I don't want to upset my parents mm-hmm. type of thing. I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, sort of, sort of mentality. But I've always liked the Huntress in the same way I like Batwoman. Kate Kane as Batwoman is years down the road here, but right. That's a that's a character I've always liked too. Um, yeah, because I I think that I get Batman as the hero of Gotham, but I like the idea that people don't feel like they need to fall in line with him in order to actually serve the public mm-hmm. so yeah and, and selena's got her own thing <laughs> yeah so where do you think she falls with batman is there some sort of because there's another thing where tim doesn't want to say anything even though alfred knows doesn't want to say anything to bruce that he's teaming up with catwoman that's a relationship of convenience and she knows it too mm-hmm. you know it's it's not it's not the classic Batman, Batman Catwoman relationship with you know where they eventually are the ones who are made for each other right or they settle down like on Earth Two which was a oh. great way to do that relationship yeah. I love the Earth Two Batman and Catwoman thing here it's like this is gonna sound so crude it's like they use each other for the sex or something like you mm. know they really they get along when they have to and yeah. they don't when they don't and, mm-hmm. you know she's. So she's off in her own world, and, and here she reluctantly teams up with him because there's a greater mm-hmm. there's a greater cause here. Yeah. There's you know, you know, n- nobody wants to see this sort of apocalypse happen. She's not she's not a villain. She's a thief, mm-hmm. and I think there's a difference there. Yeah, it does take some convincing though. 
Oh yeah, because because she's, <laughs> she's got she she's a, she is she's a bad guy, and that she she serves her self interest before yeah. she serves anything else too. So it reminded me a little bit of the Batman the Animated Series episode, which I guess it would have been New Batman and Robin at that mm-hmm. time. But the Nightwing and Catwoman episode, do you remember that? Where she was using him and he was using her and vaguely, okay, vaguely, vaguely, vaguely. Yeah, it's it it's been a long time since I've watched the the show. I did like at least, and this is hard because you only get a snapshot of Huntress, and mm-hmm. I know of her already, but if you yeah. hadn't been reading, you would kind of be, I think, a little questioning, like, why doesn't Batman like her? But I do like the story, which was in Batman Chronicles, where she goes and looks for her student, yeah. because I think you get a better picture of who Helena really is, instead of just, like, someone who has these methods that Batman doesn't approve of, you see that, like, there's actually a deeper character here and you know she's a teacher and she cares for her students so you know her belief system may not be in line with Batman but I think like character wise you know they they both have desires to help people no I really I really like that story um I know it's it's not that and the Robin story after it yeah are not integral to the entire plot correct almost like side but yep but at the same time, seeing outside of the main plot how this is affecting other people through these years is really, really good. Um, mm-hmm. I liked her story more than the Tim Fever Dream thing. Oh, yeah. That was just sad, yeah. honestly. But how does she hold down a career as a teacher? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, she's a, I'm a high school English teacher. Oh. She's a high school English teacher. How yeah. the hell does she get any work done? And yeah, or, or how is she papers. awake for her first class because there are times when I'm standing in the middle of first period and even I just look at my kids and I say, I'm sorry, I'm exhausted. I'm, uh, you know, I'm exhausted this morning and they look back at me and go like, yeah, us too. Yeah. You know, where I've like, I have nodded off Mm -hmm. in class before. Usually we're watching a movie. And and the bruises too. I feel like not many, uh, storylines have dealt with that. Just like, I mean, you're getting hit. So, are you not showing any of those bruises? Is she going? Maybe yeah. she's got a side rugby life, and so people believe it. With with Helena, I don't think there are enough hunter stories out there. Yeah, to, that really there was. She had a series at one point, and I've never read it. The uh, uh, Huntress Nightwing miniseries. No, there was oh. like there was a hunter series like way back in the very late eighties or very early nineteen nineties, like eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety, that introduced the character. But mm-hmm. I've never read the story. I've never read the series. It might be something I might track down in, in the bins if I can find it on the cheap. But there aren't enough stories of her. Yeah. There was a storyline with Tim. And maybe it was one of the – I think it was in one of the Robin miniseries. It might have been in the ongoing where he was showing up at school having had the crap knocked out of him with bruises on his mm. face. And people were people were wondering if something was going on. Yeah. And it was part of the whole secret identity thing, mm-hmm. which which is very Peter Parker in a way. But at the same time, Peter had powers that helped that out, I guess. Right. I, haven't yeah. read, I haven't read enough Spider-Man to make that – to say that's a fact. But there were, there were some really good storylines with Tim that um, Chuck Dixon wrote where – where that was interfering with his life, where like he was getting he was getting beat up, and mm-hmm. you know the the people at school were wondering if it was something other than you know because they don't know it's villains, right? <laughs> so. Yep. 
Well, speaking of Tim, I do want to talk about the Batman-Tim relationship here. And this is your Robin, so I think you'll, yeah. you'll be able to talk well about him. So this is how I saw it. It was a little troubling because Batman still seems standoffish. And that's unsettling just because of how much Tim went through when Bruce was away and, and how much I think he grew from that experience. So to have Bruce not necessarily trust him, and it may not just be trusting, but he's just like, scared but just you know kind of putting him at arm's length being sure that you know there's someone else with him and they sends Azriel to like babysit yeah. be sure that he's okay so I mean what is your perspective on this because I, I kind of wish that Batman would see like look at how much this young man's gone through he's a different person than he was you know before the Bane thing and you know why not give him some you know respect and, and let him do his his well trust him basically I don't know if it's a thing between Bruce and Tim or if it's one of those things where when faced with a crisis like this, Bruce goes into barking orders mode Mm. because like Robin's role in this is important because he's tracking down the Stuart guy um, and uh, and then he's in there to help control the riot. And so it's like – it's like Bruce is giving him an order, so he's another. You know, they 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 always like to use the soldier metaphor for whatever for Bruce, like Batman fighting the war. Mm-hmm. And and there are times when I think when when faced with a crisis this big, that Bruce clicks right into like general mode. Mm. And Dick and Tim and Tulester and and anybody else who's working with him is a soldier, and he's giving orders, and he expects those orders to be followed. So like he is kind of his errand boy in a way, but at the same time, there's a panel in, in one of the first Robin issues and, um, it's on page 63 of my trade right after, uh, commissioner Howe is getting fitted for that God awful. Oh my gosh. Um, and Alfred's with Tim and, uh, Bruce says, what's our progress, Alfred? And Alfred says, master Tim is located our subject through his usual display of resourcefulness and ingenuity. And, um, he says, thank God I can always count on him. I think his treating Tim as a soldier in his army of whatever is his way of showing I trust you as an ally, but I'm still in charge. Like So I think he does have respect for Tim, but I think Bruce just has a tendency to default to that sort of gotcha. um, that sort of behavior or mentality, especially at times like this. Why do you think Robin is the one member of the team that is infected? Why him and not somebody else? Because who gives a crap about Catwoman? <laughs> no, I, I, Batman no, does. No, but if you're going to make it personal, then it has to be Robin for a couple of reasons. One, Robin's got his own book at this point. Mm-hmm. And people, readers care about Tim Drake. You know, this is what, 96? So he's been Robin for six years now. Tim, way less than Jason, built up an audience of people who liked him before mm-hmm. he stepped into the costume. People have been invested in this character since about 1988, 89, about 1989, 1990. And the Lonely Place of Dying. The Lonely Place of Dying. And then, you know, and then so we saw Tim evolve into the character and we really care about Tim. And this is 20. 20- seven issues into the Robin series. And so we've, we've really gotten to know this character in a way that we really didn't even get to know Dick Grayson 
unless you were reading the the New Teen Titans, and even then he was on his way out of the costume for a couple of years. So, and he and Batman weren't necessarily working together. So, here you have a real Batman and Robin, and it it just it makes it a little more personal for for Bruce. And it's uh, I don't think if um, like I said, Dick doesn't have his own title at this point. It's it's also showing the dangers of being Robin. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. He gets he gets infected because he's trying to help people because he's trying to you know to stop people and it's it's a danger it's a danger of the job and you need I think we need to have at least one of our heroes get sick at some point anyway because that's realistic yeah because none of them have powers mm-hmm. and that's important to note is that like this is these are ordinary human beings fighting against this somebody's gonna get hurt you know he's um. You know he's not exactly a, a red shirt on the Enterprise, but mm-hmm. you need you need to have it. I think it adds some pathos to the to the story. N- that way, nobody can turn around and say like, "Why the hell aren't you any of you infected?" Like you know, it just I think it adds some realism. And then and it there's the emotion of having it be Tim because Tim's a you know a well liked character. However, I have some serious issues with the scene where we find out that Tim's fine. Oh gosh! Like the gotcha? Like, yeah, the gotcha. Because it because the um it happens. Sorry, I'm I'm flipping through my trade to find the exact scene. It happens at the end of an issue of Azrael, where Dick comes down to the back cave. He says, "We have it. We'll have Robin on his feet in no time." Where is Robin? Don't tell me. And Alfred says, "Yes, you're too late." It picks up exactly there at the beginning of um the Robin issue, and then on the second panel, it's like, "I'm cured," and it's a little cheap to me. For all the yeah. drama that's been going down since then, I think it's a little cheap. Isn't that how what you refer to as gallows humor? Yeah, but at the same time, it just—I don't know. It's—it's. It's, I uh, think it's something like not to joke about. Even knowing uh, that Tim was okay, like seeing that, I—I I was very startled. I thought, wait, has something happened? <laughs> yeah, and we knew we were going to get a cure for the virus. We knew that Robin wasn't going to die. Mm-hmm. Um. And we knew, and we, so it was really it, with stories like this is a matter of like you know, okay, how do they get the cure of the virus? And having Jean Paul track it down using his connection to this ancient order that were the ones who looked like they unleashed the virus on Gotham makes total sense, you know. And your and and the Talia connection, which like we said, I think has leads into legacy in a sense. Mm-hmm. It, it's subtle because it's, it's only mentioned in like one panel. So that's pretty cool, but and so like so, Azrael arrives with the cure or the formula for the cure, and they can start manufacturing it just far enough to not be the Deus Ex Machina mm-hmm. type of ending. But I wish they would have had just a little bit of something or prolonged it or given Tim the maybe the drama of is this going to work and Tim be the guinea pig for something. But it's like no, cured now he gets to go back out. And granted. You know, he talks to his family. He talks to Ariana, mm-hmm. who's his girlfriend at the time, and and it's a really sweet moment. And then there's this guy holding up, and there's this whole thing with this poor family, and they're they're dying of it, and and which is very sad in a way because like you forget that there are ordinary citizens who don't have access to a lot of different things, right? Who are probably still dying. So it's not like, hey, we got the cure and everything's okay within like an hour. There's still riots going on, and Tim's got to help, and he's not exactly up for it, and this is him pushing himself. But I don't know. I just think that they could have done those two pages slightly better. Yeah. Because I just think it was – I get the joke, but at the same time, I'm like, it just doesn't work. Yeah. 
I still think it's in poor taste, but yeah, I, it probably. I don't is. know why Alfred would go along with that. That's because because they're because and Bruce goes along with it too. By the way, yeah, because he's in the scene because it's probably because it's a dick. <laughs> oh gosh, they're just messing with him. Yeah, I liked his team up with Catwoman though. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take her crap, right? You know, he he's he's smart to her. <laughs> She's like you, pompous little brat. You know, like and. And, calls her Caddy. Yeah, Caddy. Mm-hmm. And then she ha- Catwoman has a moral compass. It's just mm-hmm. a little out of whack, but yeah. you know, I, I like the whole. I like the issue where she tracks down um, the girl in Miami and you know takes out the drug dealers and finishes it off with shoving the guy in the dryer because they're in like an appliance warehouse or something, right? And um, these these guys are villains like totally out of like Miami Vice. <laughs> Or like oh, they're total like like total action series, but then again, it's a Chuck Dixon comic book, so total action series villains, drug dealer villains, which is cool. But I do love just those panels where she's just they show her upside down. And she's like comfy, and he put her the she put her in the dryer, and you know she <laughs> turns it on, and he's it's just that's a funny moment mm-hmm. that is a little bit of comic relief in the middle of this very very serious storyline and i like how you know i like how that she's just um she understands why she has to do what she does so Mm -hmm. i I like i like the way catwoman is used in the story Um, i like her interactions with oracle mm -hmm. uh, which are you know few and far between but uh you know this isn't the first time that selena kyle and barbara gordon have come up because they actually first met in the silver age in uh, 1967 Mm-hmm. Batman one uh, ninety seven work, you know, Catwoman is vying for Batman's affections, but this was fun because you know she uses well, she's watching Ezreal who had contacted Oracle before in his series, so obviously yeah. there's a relationship there, and then she uses the same thing and sort of the the snippy tones uh, between them and her her wisecracks as well. I, I think is great, and Catwoman will be like a very short term member of the Birds of Prey, so I think in a way it almost it lends itself to that story as well. But it was just fun to see them on the on the phone and not knowing. Um, well, Catwoman not knowing who Oracle is, and Oracle clearly knowing yeah. <laughs> what's going on. You're not going to call this number again. I thought those were uh, some fun scenes because Oracle. I mean, she appears in three of the parts, but you know, she only does her oracling, as as someone called it uh, on a previous episode. <laughs> you know, just lending information. So I think where you get to see a little bit more of Barbara Gordon and her humor is is always great. But you're right about the hair and Professor Allen will appreciate that because we talk about that, how it's inconsistent. But you compared it to uh, Nightwing, how his the length of his ponytail yeah, will change. The, the length of Nightwing's ponytail at this point or another will change. But I will say this for Barbara's hair Mm-hmm. That, that is a very Barry Kitson hairstyle. If you're familiar with Barry Kitson's artwork, and I love Barry Kitson as a penciler, but if you look at the way he draws women's hair and even Superman's long hair, it's very much very. He's very consistent in that way. It's very much the same. Um, and he draws it like you could tell his art, but like if you look at if you if I'm on the page where Azrael is talking to Oracle and she's got the Corey hair, and um, two panels down from that, Selena takes her mask off 
and it's almost like they have the same hairstyle. <laughs> so it's just very, it's just the artist, yeah. um, and, and that's very much the way he did hair. I, I actually, I actually like her shorter hair. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I think I've always liked, I have always liked Barbara as a character. It was always weird to me when like Ed Bennis would draw her in a way that looked almost like nineties image where it was like, I don't know. I never, I never equated Barbara as these sort of, you know, big boobs sort of that. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, it's not that saying that Barbara isn't hot um, okay. or anything like that but it there's there's that sort of there's that sort of sexiness that comes with the intelligence that she has and she's attractive to begin with but she's not she's not she isn't starfire she mm. isn't she isn't catwoman and that's what so you know it's just kind of it's just kind of interesting i've always liked that look on her where she's just sexy and brainy and but then again that's that's me <laughs> so yeah. Are there any other – I remember you said you had some specific grievances. I never – this is – other people love it. I never like Kelly Jones's art. You um, and Dustin both. The only time I ever liked his art on Batman was the Batman Dracula. I have the first Batman Dracula mm-hmm. Worlds. Red Rain I think is the first one. And there I like it. It fits the story. I guess it fits the story here. Because it is this sort of you know poison ivy, and there's this plague, and it's it's very very horror. But I just I've never liked his Batman art, and it just I, to me it just doesn't it doesn't work here, and it takes me out of the story because um, I just think that if you wanted to go at darker tones, there could have been other artists like uh, Tom Mandrake or somebody else who could have done this uh, very very well. But then again, um, I wasn't reading Batman the, mm-hmm. the, the book Batman at the time. Um, I was reading Detective and I was reading Robin, but I didn't re- I didn't read Batman because I didn't like the artwork at that point. Even then, because I was a poor college student, you know, if I didn't like, I'm not going to buy the book out of obligation. So mm-hmm. even if it was like a buck fifty or buck ninety five or whatever it was at this time, but I, I did notice like some of his ears. There was at least one panel where like his ear was so long that it was flopping down. Yeah, and it's just I thought, like wow. Yeah, that's again. That's just one of those things where you're like, eh, you know. Yeah. Um, although the po- and the poison ivy chapter was, you know, it was an, it was an interesting way of using that character. Mm-hmm. You've read World Wars. I did read that on your recommendation. Does this not re- does the Babylon Towers thing not remind you of the plot point in World War Z right around the Great Panic? Where all those celebrities are holed up in this house in the Hamptons, oh, and they yep. and they make like a reality show on E out of it, basically because there's mm-hmm. cameras everywhere. Yeah, and it devolves into a riot, like we're not the zombies breaking in, but the regular people breaking in because not because they're like these people are holed up. We want in on this. We want protection too. It's like mm-hmm. this isn't celebrity anymore. This is like we're fighting for our lives. That's what this reminded me of. Even the World Wars he was written years after contagious yes, but, yeah but yeah the, but my grievances are few because i really really think this is a solid story would you if you know you were talking about batman through the 90s and you felt like there are some quintessential stories that fans who are catching up on the character history need to read would this be on that list for them for from you if you're going history and important storylines for the character then probably no, because mm-hmm. you could probably skip it between Nightfall 
and Cataclysm. Okay. Um, or Prodigal and Cataclysm. Um, if you want, though, a really 90s, like a good 90s story, it's a really good story of its time. Like I said, mm-hmm. because because it was just there's – it was them reacting to or, or getting on the train of the – I don't like to use the word zeitgeist because I'm not, I'm not sure if I ever use it correctly, but the sort of the trend and and what was going on with pop culture, with movies and television and such at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was the the writers like there are parts of Nightfall that are just not particularly great. The mm-hmm. two, I remember the Two Face Two Parters, just not good. But and then there, a lot of Night's Quest and Night's End. And Night's End felt rushed. Night's Quest always felt disjointed to me. But this is where this Batman team of writers is really gelling, and it's really it's a really cohesive story as opposed to something that's kind of disjointed and comes together at the end. And I think that helps when you go end up going into No Man's Land and and, and everything that comes after it. I think it's got some great examples of of some Batman writing that is uh, underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Chuck Dixon gets, and I've said this before, Chuck Dixon is one of my all-time favorite Batman writers, and I don't think he gets enough credit. There are very few people who can write action the way Chuck Dixon does across different characters and across different genres. Because just full disclosure, I'm I'm in the middle of his run of the NOM right now, so he's writing – I'm reading him writing a war comic and he wrote The Punisher as well. And he doesn't write – he has similar elements of stories he writes, but he doesn't write the same story just putting in different characters. And like so he knows Batman and he knows Robin and Nightwing and all of them really well. And he knows how to pace a story and, and make it really, really interesting in a way that um, other Batman writers who get more credit than he does don't. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does. There are there are issues of this that feel like a good episode of its Batman TV series, not the Batman TV series from the, but a Batman TV series that was like, let's say they made one a live action one in the '90s and aired it on, you know, the CW. ABC, yeah, the CW or the <laughs> WB, or they aired it in syndication or, or yeah. you know, at at like you know eight o'clock. It's bad. Mm-hmm. It really feels like that, and 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 I I say that like as a huge compliment to it because I've always liked his, uh, his, his writing and I've, and, and, and I think that's, this is a really great example of it. But like I said, it's, if you want a nineties Batman story, it's actually very much, like I said, it's very much the nineties because of, of what else was be appearing in the popular culture at the time. And it was one of those times when they latched onto something and it worked because there are other times where comic books or TV shows latch onto something that's popular elsewhere in popular culture. And it's like, Oh, you're, like Smallville did an episode where somebody had clearly watched the movie Saw. Oh yes, and I was just, yep. and I remember watching that and going, it was a decently written episode, but it was kind of like, oh, you're like it was so blatant that it just kind of took you out of it. Mm-hmm. This is very much inspired by Outbreak and the Hot Zone and that sort of stuff, but at the same time, it that didn't take me out of it. It was, oh, how how's Batman going to solve this problem? And I mm-hmm. think that's that's a good. Like with Cataclysm, it's like Cataclysm's a set, you'll be getting to that down the road, but Cataclysm's another disaster movie. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's like, okay, well, how would Batman react if you put him in this? You know, in the same way that you would have Independence Day 
and do how would Superman react to an alien invasion or something, you know, like right. that sort of thing. Yep. So, cause I don't think Batman good with an alien invasion storyline unless it was like an X-Files type of conspiracy yeah. plot. And John Constantine was helping out or something. Yeah. 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 You'd have, <laughs> to, you'd have to go the, you'd have to go the, like the Batman is Fox Mulder route as opposed yeah. to, or, or actually I think Batman would probably be Dana Scully, but you have to go Batman as the X-Files route for an alien invasion rather than Independence Day. That would be, mm-hmm. be Superman. Just knock him out of the sky. Yeah. Any other? Any other thoughts? Um, I don't know. Like, I, like I, I read this and I read that I flipped through this. You know, I read it and then I skimmed it again as I was writing the summary. And I love Mike Waringo, the late mm-hmm. Mike Waringo's artwork. I loved him on Robin. I loved him on The Flash. I loved him on um, Fantastic Four. Yeah, and he, there was another thing I was reading of him. Oh, he did some Superman for a while, too, and I, I love that. Um, Vincent Giorano was not my favorite Batman artist. His is the most 90s-looking artwork, but overall the story is, is incredibly consistent and, uh, and and really, really solid. Like I said, not 100% vital to the character of the mm-hmm. 90s, but... Remember, there's. A, I think we have to remember that there's a gap of several years between the end of Prodigal and the beginning of of right. Man's Land. Yeah. So this is this is one of the really good stories that came out of it. I mean, the Batman titles were very consistent after Nightfall and Prodigal, um, without having to go that X Men or other route of coming up with yet another crisis or something that that had to be done because they were they were running out of gas yet again so let's kick it in gear again they they really were they weren't coasting they were just moving along really really well Mm -hmm. yeah i i would agree with that consistency i feel like there weren't any necessarily bad issues uh there may have been like some filler space but i think you're going to encounter that with any sort of uh crossover and yeah i you know overall i enjoyed it i think just in compare you know comparing my other big crossover i liked that one a little bit more but it'll be interesting once i've read legacy and then cataclysm and no man's land and then war games (laughs) you know to like do a retrospective and be like which one you know do i like the most i will say that if it does turn out to be raw slash rachel ghoul that a year prior to this, which is an episode that I did with Shag, was that Elseworld story, Brotherhood of the, the Bat. Bat. And he uses a, a type of Ebola strain to basically clear, like he wants to get to the optimal population percentage. And so I'm just thinking to myself, if it happens to be him, are they just recycling, you know, ideas from one Earth to the next? Which is interesting, taking an idea from an Elseworld, because normally it's the reverse. Well, Andy pointed out something when I had him on to discuss the cult, and we got we got Batsplained about this as Uh-oh. well in the feedback I got because Andy pointed out that the cult comes out and then eventually they kind of bury that story because it really isn't mentioned again. And then of course I get people commenting, well, it's in this issue and it's in this issue and oh it's my this God. issue. And I'm like, really, <laughs> really? Um, and that's something I'll address on my own show. Cause I have a feedback portion that's going in anyway. Um, Maybe not so angrily, but, but if you look at the cult, you see elements of uh, Nightfall and No Man's Land and even bits and pieces of this where there's this sort of city under siege type of storyline that's going on. And there is the um, there is the point where, where they're, if they successfully quarantine Gotham, 
mm-hmm. which is, I think maybe that needed to be explained a little bit better because I know that I think Gotham in terms of its real world equivalent of New York city. Um, and I think of, okay, like if you're going to quarantine and cut off New York city, it's possible, but it depends on how far the virus is spread. Mm-hmm. And logistically, that is a Herculean task. So it might have behooved them to not that they have to explain it more, but but put a little more of that in there. It's just like, okay, we stop the virus from spreading outside of Gotham City. It's contained to Gotham City because that's convenient to the story. You know, we're not gonna have contagion two, the virus hits Metropolis or something. Like, you know, it's it's in Gotham and it stays in Gotham and it's cured in Gotham and we're good to go. Um, and that makes – the for simplicity's sake, I understand it. I think they, they just should have maybe shown that a little bit more because when you – because that's – but that's – again, that's reality crashing in on a comic book story where you start to think of like, wait a second. Do you know how hard it is to quarantine the city? You're like, wait, don't think about it. It's comic book. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's just me overthinking it. Well, out of 10 viruses, what would you give this story overall? On a scale from the common cold – to oh uh, to the rage virus in 28 days later. Um, oh, and by the way, just one last thing. I love the opening of this story because it reminded me of 28 Days Later. 28 Days Later has a great opening where the animal rights activists break into a lab where they're testing monkeys who have the rage virus and unwittingly basically start the apocalypse because mm. they want to free the animals and they're right. like you don't know what you're doing and then the first person gets affected and it's a scary as hell opening and, the, and it leads into the Killian Murphy's character waking up and everything's you know 28 tenths the title of the movie um, this is kind of the same effect where it's like this mysterious tape that shows up and Batman has it and it's like this ominous thing so I would put it up probably about maybe about a 9 out of 10 viruses so that would probably be Ebola Okay. And and it sounds like you may have the beginnings of the clinch anyways. I think listeners are probably thinking that. It's my allergies. (laughs) But yeah, you just, I forgot about that point. The fact that at the very beginning with the videotape, Batman doesn't even necessarily believe Asriel. He's recording him, checking his speech patterns to be sure he's not lying. Yet, he does send Asriel to sort of bodyguard Tim Drake. What's up with that? Isn't that weird? Now that you're thinking about it? I am thinking about it. The event is <laughs> Nightwing. That's where I think had Nightwing already had his own title, then he wouldn't have summoned Asriel. Okay. And I don't know what was so going on. So he's like on. a place filler, basically. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know what was going on with Nightwing at that point. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm trying to remember what was out at that point. So, I mean, he might have been around, but yeah, I think it was just let's bring in Dick a little bit later. But I think, yeah, had Nightwing had his own title at that point, he would have just brought him in right away and had Asriel work on something else, mm-hmm. you know. And at least, yeah. yeah, Asriel and Tim have sort of a pre-established relationship anyways because mm-hmm. they were at one point Batman and Robin. And I think in a couple scenes you can see how much Asriel cares for him and, and is protective of him. So I guess yeah. that, that explains it. But, I mean, Batman doesn't trust him 100%. I guess maybe he doesn't trust anyone. So. He's got reasons for not trusting Asriel. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I'm going to give this 8 out of 10 viruses. I'm not sure what that would be on, on your Spanish little virus flu. scale. Spanish flu. <laughs> okay. Uh, where's the Black Death? 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that um, that would be the Black Death then. The flu. Oh, death. okay. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so it's bubonic plague. Yeah. Okay. Bubonic plague. Well, when I come back, Tom is actually going to have morphed into a new character, and this character's name is Grunkle Stan. And we're going to talk, like a completely different tonal shift, we're going to talk about the Disney Channel original show, Gravity Falls. Yeah. So we're going to be on an upper rather than this downer. But first, Zias' radio hour featuring Bye 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 by NSYNC. Hello? Start a fight. I know this can't be 
Um, see, what happened there is, since you don't want to do a long play with me on NSYNC, I've obliquely associated your name with NSYNC. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Oh, heavens. Okay, here we go. Well, welcome back. Now, a couple weeks ago, maybe last month, Tom texted me, and I want to read this quote out because I thought it was pretty funny, and he knows me pretty well by now, I think. He said, when you plan out the Gravity Falls portion, can you send me notes so I can make sure I'm prepped and it's not just 90 minutes of you calling me Grunkle Stan <laughs> and wishing Remington was there? And I remember my res- response was, you know me so well. And I actually think that it may have been this show that ha- has like cemented our friendship because before we had just you know like we met up for coffee a couple of times when we talked we had some podcasts but now i feel like we've i don't know i feel like our friendship is stronger since i've watched this show i appreciate that <laughs> i'm being sincere okay So Gravity Falls, it's a series created by Alex Hirsch, and I just want to give a, a synopsis. I feel bad because mine's like, you know, 10% of what Tom had to do. But uh, two twins, Dipper and Maple Pines, are sent to spend the summer with their great uncle, Stan, and that's why they call him Grunkle Stan. Stan. And uh, in this mysterious town in Oregon called Gravity Falls. So Grunkle Stan, he's a bit of a a tight purse, I guess. He he doesn't like to spend money. He's a bit of a cheapskate as well with like, I mean, he he lies to people basically and uh, and creates weird things. But he he has these two kids help him run the Mystery Shack. And it's basically a tourist trap that he owns with very bizarre things. I was just watching an episode this morning where he had a... uh, a rabbit that had been stuffed and then he was like gluing or attaching <laughs> antlers on it so it would become a it's not a jackrabbit but a, a jackalope jackalope yeah so so if you can get a sense so the twins they try to adapt to the weird surroundings because it's it's odd anyways in the mystery shack but they also are figuring out that there's something a little weird about gravity falls and they begin to unlock its secrets and dipper at one point uncovers a cryptic journal and it's journal number three and the handprint on it has six fingers and it offers insight into the town's mystery and mysteries and so he and mabel start to use it and um they start to go up against some evil forces and then also just try to clear up some of the like evil gnomes you know uh (laughs) and then they start to battle um some of the mysteries and uncover them as well uh and of course along the way they also get to know people that are working in the mystery shack people around town so it's just a town full of very colorful figures so if that gives you a sense so i first wanted to ask you tom because you're the one who drew me to the series because he said have you watched dot da da and i don't even remember why you asked me I don't remember either. Because it was something related to it. Because I think we were talking about something. You said, have you ever seen Gravity Falls? And I said, no, what's that? 
if you recall that maybe. But what drew you to this particular series? I don't recall how it came up in a conversation unless we were just texting back and forth about television shows we had watched. And yeah. Honestly, uh, there were two things that uh, that drew me to it. Um, one, I have a um, he's going to be nine, and and as of this recording, he's going to be nine in about three weeks. Oh. Uh, your old son, who watches Cartoon Network and Disney XD on mm-hmm. a fairly regular basis. Um, really, the cartoons he does not like any of the live action Disney XD shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is, you know, he's been watching cartoons since he was very young, and we're still watching like the PBS Sprout Network and that sort of stuff. But um, mm-hmm. he uh, usually he'll watch that Cartoon Network block of Teen Titans Go, Steven Universe, the amazing, uh, the Amazing World of Gumball, um, which he doesn't watch as much as he used to, and and you know a couple other shows like that, mm-hmm. and and on. Um, Disney XD, he was picking up stuff like uh, Rebels, Star Wars Rebels, and, and a couple other things. And he just honestly just randomly caught an episode of the show at one point. I had heard of it because I listened to a podcast called Extra Hot Great. It's a podcast associated with the previously .TV network um, or website, which is run by the people who – created and ran for years the seminal TV recapping website, Television Without Pity, mm. um, which is now defunct. But it, it's the, the podcast is Sarah Bunting, Tari Ariano, and, and a couple other people. And they um, – I had Sarah on my show once to talk about my so-called life. But they do a weekly podcast about what's going on in TV. Tara was a fan of the show. So she had mentioned it a few times and she had mentioned it in the vein of this is a cartoon for children obviously, but it has its sort of – Adult sensibility, I guess, is the best way to describe it. It's like it's a it's a cartoon that you as an adult can watch with your kids and actually get into, as opposed to just tolerate. Mm-hmm. All right, so which is which is important because as much as I will enjoy the occasional episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, <laughs> uh, there I there's only so much SpongeBob that I can take. Right. So Brett started watching it and. We were clearly in the middle of season two when we oh, started wow. watching. Well, because because the show the show has forty episodes, mm-hmm. but it premiered in two thousand twelve, and it went off the air or it it finished because it's still you know they still rerun it, but it finished new episodes earlier this year. That's forty episodes over four years. So in two thousand twelve, that's four years ago. He would have been about five, too a little too young for this show mm-hmm. but now he's over the age so we came in probably in the first i don't even know what episode it was because one of the things about having a kid is that unless you've seen the show advertised and you remember that it's coming on you pick up a show because you just happen to be flipping through and you watch the show and then it becomes the show mm-hmm. in the same way and i kind of remember that as a kid it's, it's a little less it's a little more um this stuff's a little more random now I see as an adult than when I was a kid because as a ki- when I was a kid in the 80s, there were two, maybe three times you saw cartoons in a, in a week. There was Saturday morning, obviously, and the other time that you primarily watched cartoons was after school. Like, you know, from about three to about maybe five o'clock in the afternoon, the syndicated channels would have 
um, cartoons, and that's where I watched G.I. Joe, The Transformers, The Thundercats, Voltron, Robotech. Uh, <gasps> Robotech! Oh, yeah, Channel 11. It was it was 11. Channel 11 New York ran all of Robotech. I wow. saw all of it straight through, and I and, and that's sitting somewhere in my Netflix queue because I want to rewatch it, but mm-hmm. I saw that entire series as a kid. Probably came in, I think the first, actually, I remember the very first Robotech tangent <laughs> alert uh, I watched <laughs> Was the episode where Min May sings that song? Oh no! All right, so that was my first episode, but I watched that whole thing because it was like, like, look at this cool plane that turns into a robot, and they're fighting right. alien. And that's mm-hmm. why I watched it as a, as a kid. But that so, and then in the morning there was Saturday morning lineup. That if you read enough comics from the '80s, you know what cartoons were on because there was always an advertisement for the new cartoons on Saturday morning. The mornings before school and Sunday mornings also ran cartoons, but it was always the sort of – there was either the off-brand stuff, the stuff that had been canceled years ago, Gumby or Looney Tunes or something. But now with cable, you can watch cartoons anytime you want, and you never know what the schedule is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I found that frustrating as somebody who was so used to like, you know, G.I. Joe was on 4 o'clock every day until right. they finally took it off the air. I don't know when half these shows are on. I had that issue with MTV years ago because MTV was another network that always changed its schedule around whenever it wanted to. Um, so we would pick up the show as it went. And then eventually started um, with DVR, the episodes especially found out that they were going to end the series. So we wanted to, you know, kind of be on top of the stuff. Hulu just last week put the entire series on for streaming. And I have a Hulu Plus account. So for the last few days, I've done a complete rewatch of the 40 main episodes. And it wasn't until you texted me the other day to point out that there were the mini videos they made. Yeah. It was in between seasons, I believe. But mm-hmm. I watched – so in the last few days, though, I've watched all 40 episodes of the series. Wow. Well done. As a rewatch. I only intended to watch a few. Mm-hmm. And I watched the ones from the first season that I'd maybe seen once or really hadn't seen. But then I just kind of got sucked in. And all the episodes except for the finale are a half an hour. Right. So it's really quick, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's a great show to binge watch. But yeah, so I got sucked in because my kids started watching it. I had heard about it on a podcast. and I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And the show that I really liked watching with him had only lasted two seasons. And that was Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. Oh, which was so good. We're watching the second season now, actually, because we had missed the second season. So, um, but yes, that's how I got into Gravity Falls. Really have enjoyed it even more on the rewatch, and mm-hmm. and he really liked it too, and my wife liked it. So it was one of those things where usually, like when the three of us watch TV together, it's something he wants to watch, and the two of us are like half paying attention. Yeah. At this point, but this is one of those things where like all of us were like, "You love, let's watch this." So mm-hmm. it's really cool. Yeah. And I've been staying away, uh, you know, from cartoons mm-hmm. because I feel like, you know, the, the ones that you've mentioned, like adventure, like I don't really understand them. It feels like it's just some sort of acid trip and like I'm not, I, you know, I'm not going to get it. I've seen a few episodes. Uh, he watches Adventure Time from yeah. time to time. I enjoy them. I mean, I'm not that heavily into them. There are some mm-hmm. episodes that I find really fun and the characters I find really fun. But you're right. I'm just like, Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I just maybe I'm just thinking about you know my childhood and thinking about the the '90s superhero shows on Fox and and those sort of ones and Ben Ten I think was the I was very devoted to that show and then you know they had to mix it up and make it 
more accessible, I guess, to kids mm-hmm. uh, to dumb it down a little bit, which, you know, is frustrating. So I guess maybe I've been a little bit burnt. But, you know, when going into it, the first episode <laughs> was super bizarre. And I thought, oh, is this is this how it's going to be? But it actually it, it hooks you rather quickly. Because it, it does have random elements, and I guess I'm talking about storytelling style now. Yeah. It has random elements to it. And it sometimes has backflash moments or moments where, you know, don't do this. It's like that time I, I don't know, nailed my hand to the statue. And mm-hmm. then, like, it may cut and show, you know. Because I, I think the, the first episode where you really get a sense of who Mabel is is, like, she's just randomly rolling around in the grass. <laughs> <laughs> She rolls down. You're like, oh, okay. And then, of course, there's always this bizarre end credit scene. Sometimes it's bizarre. Sometimes it's not. I think yeah. in that first episode, it was Sean. Sean, the the uh, the gnome, throwing yeah. up a rainbow for yeah. at least five seconds. So it's got a very unique storytelling style, I think. It, it's... I guess, like, the whole series is, like, vignettes or, like, mini episodes. It, it can be encased in mm-hmm. one episode. However, the entire series is very well tied together. Like, there's obviously this overall arc that's going on. There are, you know, hidden hidden little things. And then the second season, I think, is even much more so um, mm-hmm. with how tight the storytelling is. So I like that, you know, if you hop in, you won't – I mean – you know, if you hop in as like Gideon's second appearance and he's talking about his vengeance, you may be a little confused. But for the most part, I feel like each of the episodes you could stop by and enjoy it. And then, you know, if you want to get into more of it, then you've got to start from the beginning to see everything. Yeah, it, it's one of those shows that if you're, you're that's exactly that's exactly right. There's the next files monster of the week vibe about some of the episodes right. where it's like, this is the crazy thing happening this week, but at the mm-hmm. same time and the subplots are there if you want to follow them around, but yeah, it is really easy to just drop in for an episode yet. The mm-hmm. show has a really well weaved continuity. Um, the big bad for the entire series is this triangle pyramid <laughs> with an eye. It's yeah. almost like it seriously looks like a, a, an arms and legs and a top hat and a bow, which kind of looks. It's purposely looks like in like an Illuminati symbol. Yeah, it's it's. Called. I was just watching the behind the pines or in the mm-hmm. something like that, and yeah. he got it from the back of the dollar bill. A bill, yes, yeah, yeah. so, and his name is Bill Cipher. Mm-hmm. That is somebody who doesn't show up until. Is it the first season finale? I think he actually the, makes his first appearance. The the one right before, right before yeah. Gideon gets the, the okay, deed. right yeah. before yeah, right before the Gideon robot episode, <laughs> which yes. is so fun. Yeah, but he's the big bad, and mm-hmm. but he's seated like he is seated like right from the very beginning, right. but it's done yep. in a subtle way. And the other thing is, is like there's a unique storytelling aspect to this, but there's also a lot of very conventional almost sitcom-y stories that mm-hmm. are, that really, really work. Like there's an episode called Boss Mabel. Oh, yes. Where they're complaining about how Stan runs the mystery shack. So Stan goes on, he goes to like, oh, he goes on, he goes on a cash wheel, which is basically like a wheel <laughs> of fortune thing. Yeah. And he goes, and then Mabel, he challenges Mabel to a bet of she's going to run the mystery shack. And she, it, I've seen this plot on sitcoms. 
where she realizes that he runs things the way he runs things because if she doesn't his way, like everybody walks all over her, right. no, nothing ever gets done. And then he goes on cash wheel and can't win the big money because it's the one phrase that, <gasps> yeah. that he doesn't know. And it's mm-hmm. like, it was the, the mission was like, please. Mm-hmm. And it was, but it's like, that's totally what has happened on sitcoms. But at the same time, it really, really works mm-hmm. within this story's, universe and there are other there are other really really conventional storytelling tropes that i think that of my rewatch i really found way more endearing sometimes in the crazy mythology behind the show mm-hmm. mabel and stan are 12 uh mabel and dipper are 12 years old yep and they are uh the very last episode takes the very last episode so the last four Final three episodes are a three-parter called Weird Mageddon. Mm-hmm. And then the one before that is the one where it's about a week away from their 13th birthday. Right. And there's this real rift that happens between the two of them as a result of just all these things that are going on. There's this – they capture what it's like to be 12 years old really really well. Mm-hmm. You know, like hanging around – like Dipper's got this crush in this older girl named Wendy – who is voiced by Linda Cardellini. Yes. Oh, Lindsay Perfect Weir. Casting. Oh, oh, you. Lindsay Weir. Um, who in uh, one episode of the show, uh, they're flying through like all these weird balls. And there's like a split second of her in live action. And, and um, Jason Ritter is Dipper. Anyway. But uh, Linda Cardellini voices Wendy. He's the older girl he's got a crush on. And mm-hmm. she's like 15, 16 years old. Mabel is this boy crazy twelve year old girl who is a who everything of hers is like out of a Lisa Frank notebook, you know, unicorns and rainbows and everything. And there's so much that's realistic about the way these two act toward one another as as siblings and then how they are on the cusp of being teenagers mm-hmm. yet are still very innocent in a way that's done for really, really good laughs. And matches up with something on the order of like uh, Stand By Me mm, or, yeah. or or another movie that's of that sort of very preteen. Because they're not – they don't fall into the trap of something I hate about characters their age that have been written like this in, in many in many ways uh, in many things. They're not precocious in that I know more than the adults and all the adults are stupid and I'm way more sophisticated than any 12-year-old should be. They're just as immature – you know, no, this isn't like Spy Kids or something where they're like they outsmart everybody and they're so self-aware at being twelve. No, it's like no, they're they're as much of a, they make as many mistakes and they're just as mature and they're just as clueless as anybody is at that age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that was one of the main themes running throughout is just like this pre-adolescence and childhood. And I don't know if you realize how big of a jump. You know, that gap is between 12 and 13 yeah. uh, until you, uh, well, I think until you teach those particular students. But, you know, if you see this and, and they're, you know, it's running throughout where Dipper wants to, because he wants to, you know, be with Wendy, he lies about his age. So he's actually a teenager and he wants to grow up, I think, in order to be with Wendy, but for other reasons as well. But then, I think Mabel, where you especially see it at the very end, she wants to stay that age forever. And I think she wants Dipper to to stay with her like that as well. But at the same time, like Dipper being into 
mysteries Mm -hmm. and the supernatural 12 year old me was dipper who like because that was my favorite section of the library when Mm -hmm. i was checking out like you know star well i I read the hardy boys when i was like nine or ten but then i was like star trek novels and the star wars eu Mm -hmm. but time life had this series you may or may not remember it because honestly, and I'm not doing this to make fun of you, because it was like around in like the late 80s, early 90s, so you may have not been old enough to remember them, but they were called Mysteries of the Unknown. Mm. And they used to advertise them on television of like, you know, here's this crazy mystery and here's this book. And it's all about there was like mystic places and alien encounters and UFOs. And they were these hardcover books in the library had like a ton of them. And I would check them out all the time because it was totally like what you would now go on sort of like Snopes or something to look at, you know, urban legends, and mm-hmm. all this crazy stuff. And it's like at 12 years old, that stuff is awesome because honestly, I knew I liked girls when I was 12, but I, I had no idea what the heck I was doing in that <laughs> room. And then Dipper's the same yeah. way. He has mm-hmm. no, he doesn't. There, there's an episode where they go on a road trip to play, play pranks on the other tourist traps. Mm-hmm. And Dipper starts getting all these oh, girls' gosh. phone numbers and stuff. Yep. And, but he's, he is completely like, and then I think toward the end of the episode, all the girls end up seeing each other. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait a second. You, it's almost like, all you've been doing is collecting phone numbers and it's so like there's a comeuppance there, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I didn't know what the heck to do with girls. I mean, I didn't know what the heck to do with girls at 15 or 16 either, but 12 for me was the end of elementary school because uh, I just, because I happened to go to a, in, in a school district where they had a grade one K through six elementary and a seven, eight, nine junior high. Mm-hmm. So 12 to 13 was roughly getting into the seventh grade. And it was that sort of weird leap because the difference between you're right, difference between sixth, seventh, and eighth grade is huge. Mm-hmm. It's it pretty much is like it's like that difference between being a freshman and being a senior too. Like and and twelve, eighteen, and twenty one is where or thirteen, eighteen, and twenty one are ages where you know you're older, and you know there's a milestone. Yet you're still pretty immature. You don't know what to do with yourself. You know, it's like mm-hmm. 21, I can drink legally, but I'm still in college and I might still be living with my parents. And so nothing has really changed except that now I can walk into the 7-Eleven and buy a six pack of beer instead of sitting outside and trying to get somebody to buy a six pack, oh, which I never did. But point being, like, yeah. you know, there's certain things, you know, have changed, but at the same time, something hasn't. And that's what 13 felt like, too, where it's like, I'm in junior high now. I'm supposed to be more mature. We don't go to recess anymore and all these things. And you're like... But I still like the professional wrestling and mm-hmm. still like watching Star Wars and <laughs> I still have toys. And, yeah. you know, it's it's really, really weird. So I remember that scene where Mabel is all excited and she finds Wendy at the high school registration <laughs> and it's, it turns into a nightmare. <laughs> oh, the man. character of Thompson is in the fetal position. Oh, my God. He's gosh. like rolling around Thompson, going, I can't take it Uh Yeah. Is this wholly unique? Do you think? Because you were saying how you saw some some sitcoms, but do you think overall, with I mean, since you have a son, you've experienced many cartoons. Do you think that this is pretty unique? I think it is because it it because a lot of the cartoons that are on now, some of them have the same sort of kind of template. There's a lot of wacky sort of stuff on now. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are action shows. There's you know, like Rebels is is in the Star Wars vein. And then Steven Universe is a really well done show. 
that has a lot of humor to it, but is also very kind of serious in its in its the way it, it presents itself and and takes its action very seriously. But then you have stuff like Clarence, which is awful, and uh, <laughs> the Amazing World of Gumball, which is basically like training ground for South Park or The Simpsons, back when that show was good, um, or Family Guy, which I hate. You know, so they're, they're, it's like a watered down version of that where there's all this like wacky stuff that we've seen in other shows going all the way back to the, to the early 90s. And Gravity Falls has some of that, but they've based it around, I think, um, an idea of this weird town where, where a lot of things happen. That's been done before, too. There was a show in the early 90s called Eerie, Indiana. <gasps> I was just going to mention that. And Yeah, so it's like, it's like we took all these different elements, but I think what makes it unique is that there really wasn't any other sh- show that I was watching with my kid at the time outside of some Scooby-Doo stuff like that on television. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was falling into the crazy, wacky stuff that owes itself to like Seth MacFarlane then rather than say, um, you know, stuff like Yuri Indiana or the, um, those goosebumps type of shows and stuff mm-hmm. like that from back way back in the day as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about Yuri Indiana yeah. because it's very much, you know, this kid, he moves. And I remember like the opening sequence, you've got the basketball team and they're all bouncing in rhythm. Like there's clearly weird stuff going on with it. But other than that, I, I do see it as, very original and unique as well. Uh, I love it because you not only have the brains with one twin, but you have the heart with the other. And I think twins are just, I don't know, I really like twins for whatever reason. I'm sure that could take be taken very badly. But I mean it because, like, there's just, there's clearly something very special about their bond that if you don't have one, you really wouldn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that this show uh, really utilizes that aspect. And it was actually based off of uh, Alex is a twin his twin is Ariel so like this is Mm. partially obviously they didn't encounter any gnomes in the woods but it's based off of you know some adventures that uh, both of them had when they were traveling and taking vacations in the summer so some some true to life stuff which is always great yeah and they give a they have a character in a in a in a girl who is not dependent on any of the other I mean she goes through a lot of those things that I would I guess girls go through with friends and the rival of the mean girl and stuff. But at the mm-hmm. same time, like Dipper's not the one who solves all the problems. And the whole point of part of the finale is that he can't do this without her. Like right. he's trying to defeat this Bill Cipher thing mm-hmm. and he tries to do it on his own with somebody because he's decided that that's the path he wants to take. Mabel, that's where this rift comes in. Mabel completely rejects him. Right. And he realizes that after he fails, he's like, I need my sister. And Mm -hmm. so that's really important, too. I mean, I have a sister who's three years younger than me. And, you know, we never really had adventures like this either. But (laughs) sometimes we're, you know, we have a bond, usually complaining about our parents. But we have a bond that, you know, is not that close. But there were times where it was. And honestly, like, I, I watched the finale this morning. There's an episode in the middle of the finale um, where... Mabel has been captured by Bill, but her prison, prison of her own making, because he basically gives her what she wants. She can stay 12 forever. And she creates this mythical world called Mabel land. Yep. Mabel land cracks me up because it's just <laughs> rainbows and 
and and, and a stuffed animal tree that sings and it, they and like you can't mention reality and yeah. just this whole thing and there's a gag that I didn't notice this until uh toward the end of the first season that on the very I think it's the very first episode Uncle Stan's like pick out whatever you want right and yeah. Mabel grabs a grappling hook and it's if it's seen again through a couple of episodes it never does anything except break stuff and then all of a sudden there's the grappling so the grappling hook comes up later on yes it's like you're not like where the hell did a 12 year old girl get a grappling hook and it's it's established like in the very first episode that she had a grappling go. hook so yeah. they, got, <sighs> they got on each other's nerves though there's that episode where they just seuss who is the uh the handyman mm-hmm discovers that Mabel is like a millimeter taller than, than right. and she yep. starts going alpha twin alpha twin and Grunkle Stan has one of my favorite lines he says I I was sleeping and I heard mockery and it woke me up <laughs> <laughs> or something oh, to that extent gosh. yeah 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 he does crazy stuff I just watched an episode well, I was rewatching one of them where he like pokes out of the window suddenly because Robbie and Dipper were about to get into a fight, and he says, "It looks I know the t- the telltale signs of a fight." And then he like goes back inside as if he's going to be a responsible adult, and then he comes back out with popcorn. It's like, oh, I was going to call my friends. <laughs> well, he was watching a show. He was he was flipping channels and everything was fighting, and he was watching a show called Baby Fights. Yeah. Is crazy. Yeah, but it's it's all done for for laughs because he's this grumpy, grizzled old man type of mm-hmm. character who wears a fez that kind of looks like a fez that a Shriner would wear. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's always trying to like con people out of their money at the Mystery Shack, which is you're right. It's like a total tourist trap. <laughs> Yeah. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about the characters? We've kind of yeah, already sure. on it. I was actually looking, like, this list could, I mean, it could be huge. It's already big. So do you mm-hmm. just want to hit up, like, the main three? And then if there are any others that you, like, really want to zoom in on, we can talk about them? Yeah, sure. Okay. So let's go with Dipper first. And I think we've we've talked about him a little bit. Mm-hmm. But Dipper is not his real name. It's not his birth name. But he's called Dipper because he has a very interesting constellation of mm-hmm. birthmarks <laughs> on like, his it, forehead. It's like a pattern of freckles that looks like the Big Dipper on his forehead. Yes, yeah. And again, in that Beyond the Pines or Behind the Pines episode, uh, Alex Hirsch was saying that when he went to school, there was some teenager that was in the same class as him and his acne, I guess, would have very interesting arrays. And he swore that one of them was a constellation uh, of the Big Dipper. And so that's, you know, where this inspiration comes from. Uh, but he's very much, yeah, he's the he's the mystery guy. He, he does stay up late at night reading the Hardy Boys equivalent. I can't remember what they were called yeah. in the show. But he, like, tries to solve the mystery and annoys Mabel and everything. But he's the one who finds a journal, and that's really how it all starts. And I think he's also in this strange place because Mabel, I think, doesn't really care necessarily if anyone accepts her because she very much goes, she marches to the beat of her own drum. Oh, yeah. But I think that Dipper, and you can correct me if you disagree, or I guess just disagree if you disagree, (laughs) I I think he looks for someone that is like him. And it's clearly not Grunkle Stan. And at one point, he wonders, you know, why is Grunkle Stan so hard on him? And there's that that misunderstanding that he feels like Grunkle Stan just wants to get rid of him, but Grunkle Stan is actually trying to toughen him up because 
he felt like he was that way and people didn't want him. But then when you have the twin brother arrive, mm-hmm. he kind of has someone that, uh, well, first of all, he's the author of the journal, so that's a big thing. But it's also someone who's into mysteries. They do that, the dragons, dungeons, dungeons, and more dungeons. dungeons game. Yeah. But even then, he's not fully accepted by him, even though he always wants to lend a hand, and, and Stanford is really just saying no, no, no. Um, so it's tough for him, and you know, wanting to grow up and, and be accepted with people that he feels like are, are similar to him. But he's also... One of those guys where you feel bad for, but you also are, I, he's very cute and charming as well in the things that he does to try to impress Wendy. And he is a, a sweet guy, but I think sometimes, sometimes his brain gets a little bit ahead of him. Yeah. Something I noticed this, the last couple of days when I was watching it again was how uh, Uncle Ford, as they come to call him, yeah. wants Dipper to be his, like, right his apprentice. Mm-hmm. And the the one of the things they established is that there was this rift between the two brothers and Ford inadvertently has history sort of repeat itself. And that ultimately leads to Dipper realizing that he needs Mabel mm-hmm. if he's ever going to survive. And like, and it's almost like for Dipper as if Dipper would stop everything now and stay 12 forever. He grows up to be Ford mm-hmm. who you know, without getting into his backstory too much, but, but, and, and Mabel's not exactly Stan, but there is a little bit of Stan and Mabel. So there's a sort of dynamic between the two of them of, of, you know, if like these two kids need to stick together or they're going to end up like these two old men who fought and then didn't speak for years and years and years. But yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And Dipper is the kid who's like at times almost too either intelligent or curious for his own good. Mm Mm-hmm. I think curious is better. He's not, like I said, he's very intelligent, but he is not the precocious sort of I know all the rules type of intelligence mm-hmm. that that permeates a lot of of a lot of characters, a lot of characterization these days. Mm-hmm. Well, next is Mabel Pines, <laughs> my personal favorite with Waddles, uh, who is her her pig that, that pig. she she won like fifteen different times because they had to keep time traveling. <laughs> Mabel, like I said, marches to the beat of her own drum. She has, what I love about this, something that annoys me for whatever reason is when cartoon characters wear the same clothing. I guess I can understand that animators don't want to redo it all the time. You know, Dipper is one of those. he, He has that symptom. He wears it all the time. However... Mabel wears these amazing sweaters that she makes on her own and either they fit the episode or it's like completely random. Like I remember one time she like pushed a button and her her sweater lit up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, different things like that. And then she's got her pet pig. I She's totally, I feel like, the heart of, of the duo as well as maybe the series. Uh, she has some feelings of her own. I just rewatched that several times mm-hmm. the, yeah the boy, boy band, band episode see the bye 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 fits in here uh <laughs> well, La- lance fasted one of the voices oh did he really I, I i'm i have the imdb cast page up because i'm just i'm and i'm scrolling through it because i'm looking at the names of people they got to do voices yeah and i'm like holy crap like jk simmons yes who has an oscar yep did was, was uncle ford yeah he was yeah in the finale, there is uh, Bill Cipher unleashes all these monsters, and there is a monster who is the head of a man with the with a huge arm. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yes. The one you who keeps who, wanting to eat people. Yeah. You know who did that voice? I may have at one time. I don't recall. I looked it up. Louis C.K. Oh, wow. I'm just like, I'm looking at all these people who, <laughs> now, you like you said, like Kristen Schaal, mm-hmm. who is um, easily recognizable. She's been on a lot of things, Did was Mabel. Linda Carlini was Wendy. So it was, yeah. So, but Lance Bass did one of the several times voices. So I was like, okay, so in sync totally makes sense here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love Mabel. I don't know. I love like the random stuff that she does that really, like she bedazzles her face. Um, glitter. She, Everything is glitter. <laughs> she got so excited about uh, candy like free candy that she eats it without taking off the wrappers. And then five seconds later, she's like, it was a mistake. And she's coughing up. So I just crazy stuff, but like, she just loves everyone. And I think, I guess it was the finale or mid season. I don't know. In season two, where like she trusts Grunkle Stan that he's not trying to do something that bad for the family. Whereas Dipper is like, no, you need to look at what he's doing. And she believes in Grunkle Stan. And so I think she really believes in the, maybe not Pacifica Northwest, but she believes in like good intentions of people. And, and which is, I think something that, that I love about her. Yeah. And she's, she's a bit of a kook, (laughs) but again, her quirkiness. Yeah is so essential to the overall plot of the show because the very la- one of the very last scenes of the very last episode, she's been keeping a scrapbook and a diary the yep. entire thing. And there's like one episode, I think, that has a voiceover narration and it's different. It's the first one and then part of the last one. Mm-hmm. But Mabel is just kind of working on this scrapbook in the background for most of the series of like, because she's a girl mm-hmm. and that sounds so sexist, but she's the, she's an arts and craftsy type of 12 year old girl who would do that sort of stuff. And, you know, and I admit to doing scrapbook stuff from high school and college myself. So it's not just a girl thing, but it's totally within her character. And then it, it comes just like the grappling hook was like this thing. She got the first episode later on in the very last episode, one of the very last scenes, the scrapbook is really important in a way that you're like, Oh, okay. And so that's what I liked about the storytelling, but yeah, I I really like her character. Mm -hmm. She cracks me up. She's got these friends who are quirky. (laughs) They're like, she's got the one really intelligent friend. And then, um, what's her, what's her big friend's name? Brenda. Brenda. Who's like the Hulk. (laughs) Yeah. And has a very deep voice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's part of what one of the reasons I like the show is because I people in junior high and high school, that's my experience. And they hang out with weird people. And mm-hmm. that's even the teenagers they hang out with are kind of scrubs, you know? And so they hang out with these kind of nerdy, like these weird, these weird teenage kids too. And, and not everybody is beautiful and perfect and belongs on a CW show. And yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not, it's, this isn't 90210 it, with regard to the social dynamic and the characters. But uh, yeah, and then her, you're right about the sweaters. Yes. It's just, it, they are, and, and her, her love of waddles. Oh, waddles is the Waddles, waddles. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just uh, the crazy stuff they do together. Yeah. The sock opera episode. Oh, my heavens. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing about, yeah, that I think her, 
I mean, she's similar to Dipper in the fact Dipper wants uh, to be with Wendy, and I think Mabel is just looking for like a summer romance. And, and the first time that you see this, she like slips a note to a guy and it says, "Do you like me? Yes, definitely, absolutely." <laughs> and she's like, "I rigged it," and all these creepy things. But yeah, lots of them, like the sock opera. She gets a crush on a guy who does sock puppet theater for little kids and then she makes up this elaborate yeah i'm making up one too and yeah this crazy stuff uh and the one guy who in town who is like in love with her is gideon oh yeah it's this little gideon little gideon like this (laughs) this with this southern accent that i've seen these characters he reminds me of a character from a sitcom I think it was Will and Grace. Oh. There was a character, and I want to say the character's name was Leslie, who was this short guy who was kind of a um, a foil for, oh, I haven't watched the show in years, Karen maybe, who had a very similar voice. And uh, But he is like, but little Gideon's like a, he's got this sort of pompadour hairstyle. And, oh boy, yeah. And, and he kind of looks like a pig. He and, does, yeah. Yeah, and um and, and he's and he's like hopelessly in love with, with Mabel, but in this mm-hmm. sort of creepy, like you're you're gonna be my queen sort of way, you know. Yep. In the finale he has to hold her hand for something, she's like, Don't make a big deal out of this. And he's like, I am not and he whispers like, I am <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was that circle. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy stuff. So yeah. I remember that same bedazzled episode she coughs up some of the jewels and it like goes perfectly on the collar and he says enchanting utterly enchanting (laughs) (laughs) it's like she does that every day (sighs) yeah he's another one of the villains who turns out to be okay in the end like yeah comes down to it yeah so well uh your namesake your uncle stan (laughs) Stan. your uncle stan and (laughs) as as harsh as he is because i think He is a curmudgeon. Yes, he is. Uh, And I think I may have accidentally watched something out of order. And I think the first time I may have seen him was the Taurus Trapped one. And he's yelling at them as he goes away and saying, you're dead to me, you're dead to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're like, you're thinking, who is this guy? But as as it progresses, and even though he is, he's very odd and he gets his old man ponytail from the mail-on catalog... (laughs) Um, you can tell how much he cares for these two kids yeah. um, and how much and, – and you really feel for him as well because Stanford, very much holding a grudge, which you may agree or, or disagree with that. But he's – I mean, Stan Lee, you know, Uncle Stan has been dedicating his life to getting his brother back. And it's really – it's sad to see that he's very much rejected as soon as Stanford comes back. But – that family dynamic between the three of them, Dipper, Mabel, and Grunkle Stan, uh, which you see, you know, in and out, but especially at the end, which brought tears to my eyes, is just wonderful. I think family is definitely a theme that runs throughout this show, too. Yeah. No, I got choked up at the end. Yeah? Um, when he loses his memory? Yeah, where where Mabel hugs him, and mm-hmm. she's just like, and he's like, who are, what's your, you're a nice little kid, what's yeah. your name? She's like, Grunkle Stan, and a lot of that is in the acting. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, he. Th- there's a point, and and it's not 
it's not again it's just these things that they do with story beats because they're just they're they're done subtly or they're done just in a very organic way there's a point where he just starts referring to them here and there as my kids mm-hmm. and I, I know it's just because like you know he's the watcher he's watching over them and stuff but you can really tell that at some point especially through all these adventures that he's not just caring for these kids out of obligation because you know his they've been sent to live with him for the summer he genuinely he thinks of them almost as his own children and and it's done in a way that makes sense there's no episode where he realizes it it's just you kind of progresses as 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 the character grows i love him as as a boss to to Seuss, who is such a big dumb big dumb ox yeah but but he you know he's always just shut up Zeus and like, mm-hmm. you know, or barking orders at him and stuff like that. And, uh, but yeah, he's, and then he, and he's got this sort of gambler con artist thing going about him, which comes up in more than episode. And mm-hmm. the reason they are victorious in one episode. In fact, that dungeons, dungeons and dungeons episode. I didn't realize it until watching it recently that it really foreshadows the ending of the show mm. of how it's Dan putting on a con that wins the day mm-hmm. because he, they, they make him roll. Um, he has to roll the 38 sided die. And the only way to defeat the monster is because he's playing like the controversial 1991 version of the game. Oh gosh. And honestly, I think shag and Gene <laughs> Hendricks. I don't know. I know. I bring up Shag. If, if there's an episode that Shag should watch, it's that one because I think Shag's like a rolling role playing game guy, and I think he'd appreciate the joke. But they have to roll like a perfect thirty eight, and he rolls the perfect thirty eight because he stuck gum to the bottom of the die, so it would stop on thirty eight. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, and then there are some other tricks that come up, and I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, I love Stan. Stan is the curmudgeon, as the Scrooge McDuck of the whole thing. Yep who's constantly exasperated by all the stupid crap that these kids are getting into. Sometimes he's dragged into them. Sometimes he drags the kids into them. Like, put on these blindfolds and get in the car. We're going fishing. I know, yeah. <laughs> so, just like, stuff like that. So. And did he get arrested for teaching a bear to drive? Yes. Wasn't that like his first and record? That's a great scene. And then, <laughs> and then he's got pug trafficking. <laughs> He's, you know, he's like trafficking pugs across the border. It's, it's brought up as a joke. I know. Because there, there's an episode where he gets, um, oh, he runs for mayor and he gets disqualified because of his criminal Right, records. yes. And Sandra Jimenez, who's the, the local newscaster, mm-hmm. who cries at one point because an actual story happens. Yeah. In Gravity Falls. She says the rest of this episode, this rest of this nude cast will just be dedicated to reading off Stan Pines' criminal record and pug trafficking's on there. And it's like either the next episode or the episode after that, he's got all these pugs in barrels and he's telling this guy in Spanish that he has to get them over the border. <laughs> it's so bizarre. But the, the scene where he's teaching the bear how to drive is yeah. just. <laughs> it's a very Homer Simpson thing. Yeah. But it, it it works. It works in a way that a million other Homer Simpson ripoffs, Peter Griffin, don't. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and and that's what I that's what I like it because it's not it's not blatantly taking that one character. It's it's playing on a on a type of character. Yeah, and and the fact that he has there's a lot of heart. You're right. It's not just Mabel. There is a lot of heart to this show. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing. It's not just you know here's all the crazy stuff that happens. Here's all the cool looking stuff that happens. Yeah. What's the alternate reality of Dipper that that Mabel creates in um. Like the Poochie version of Dipper that Mabel creates in in Mableland, Dip Diggity or some oh yeah sunglasses yep. and the mm-hmm. it's yeah it's and and then and then and then there's another one in the Dungeons Dungeons and Dungeons episodes where they talk about how it, in the 90s it became basically like they tried to update it and it was like let's just take Prince of Bel Air and Dungeons and Dragons and make it like this hip hop infused thing that was just like awful oh yeah i remember awful, that yep yep all the 90s tropes all mm-hmm. the poochie, all the poochie so yeah and then uh xyler and chaz i think those mm-hmm. two guys that yeah they're total like california 90s-esque weren't they, weren't they off of like either a video that she wanted to watch yes yep or something yeah i can't remember what it was it was yeah, like but it california was like, dream boys but yeah, yeah. She wanted to watch it when Grunkle Stan was watching, like, the old boy, the cowboy and the old boy or something like that. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what that was, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Yep. And they have a show that they like to watch called Duck Detective. Yes, Duck Detective. He doesn't appreciate any bird jokes from, yeah. from his partner. <laughs> uh, yeah. There was something I wanted to ask you about Mabel, perspective-wise. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple times where Mabel... She's doing her own thing, and uh, Dipper is doing his. And Mabel will stop and say, "Like Dipper, I've you know I've done all these things for you. Why can't you you know help me out and do this for me now?" Um, one of them was certainly the sock puppet. Uh, there was another one that I can't recall off the top of my head, but it's interesting that she like guilts him. She like almost shames him a couple times, whereas I almost feel like the reverse is sometimes true, that she's very much in her own mindset and doing her own thing. And when Dipper needs help, she's not necessarily always, you know, at the beck and call of him. Do you see that or do you think it really is just a couple times that she's like, snap out of it, Dipper, I need your help? No, I, I, I see that. No, I definitely see where you're coming from. I think one of the other times is when she wants to plan the 13th birthday party. Yeah, and that's what actually comes between them. Right. He yep. wants to stay with Ford and mm-hmm. leave her, and um, but no, you're right. It, but then again, that's a pretty realistic depiction of a sibling relationship like that, mm-hmm. where you know they 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 experience life together as twins, yet they are very much their own people, and it it shows how you do, even if it's your sister, you grow apart from that person a little bit because of you know what you're doing. And it is, and, and but I, I do like. There are those moments where she's like, kind of snap out of it. I need you for this, and and it goes the other way. I think in, in some regard too, especially well, especially toward the end in, in Mabel Land, where she where he has realized that he can't go completely off on his own, and he has mm-hmm. to, to her why she can't. And then there's that great scene that literally involves a pig flying. Oh <gasps> yes. Where she destroys Mabel Land. And she says, time to burst Where's your bubble. bubble. And I yeah. love that scene. It's so great. I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, it's when pigs fly. Yep. And, and it's just, but you're right. You're right. She, she, she very much does her own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she is though, like she's the leader of the, of the girls. Mm-hmm. But unlike say, 
Regina George or Heather Chandler. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Heather Chandler. She's not bossy in that. She can be bossy, but she's not like the queen bee mm-hmm. in that regard too. That's this. I, I really, really liked that character. And I did text you at one point with, wow, you really are. Me. <laughs> Cause I could like, I don't think you were like this at 12 years old, but I can see you being like this. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe I'm so like that now when I whisper in the comic shop. That was just weird. <laughs> it, you know, it's like the library. You have to be Stella, respectful. Stella, I have yeah? like, I have like, I was taping that whole time. No, I'm not kidding. I had my recorder on in my pocket. That entire, <laughs> or I had it on top of my comics. That entire 45 minutes is uh-huh. useless. It's either sh- shuffling around in my pocket. Or barely audible whispers from you. So thank you for that. Don't point me. Alan was also whispering. So anywho. I think Emily Emily's a librarian. She's whipped Alan into shape, though. Oh, you there you know. go. Mary in the library. Well, those are the big three. Were there any other characters that you'd like to bring up? Any ones that um, are special to your heart? There are some one-off characters that I just find funny. In regard- I liked Wendy. Mm-hmm. Wendy's the cool chick that boys like me always wish we had in our life. You know, that laid-back, cool, you know, girl that you would have a crush on. And I've had a couple of friends, like girl, girl, not girlfriends, but girl friends, like friends who are girls. Like, oh, yes. God, I sound like I'm a freaking junior <laughs> high again. Woo! I've had a few friends who are girls yep. like that over the years who are just very chill and laid-back and totally would never – would have never gone out with me because I was way too high strung, but I, I liked her. And like I said, I Linda Cardellini is on my laminated list. So, um, and, um, I'm trying to think of who else I'm just kind of going through the, uh, her, her family is the, the corduroy yes. family. Yep. And her father is like this testosterone lumberjack character that is just good. Is a one note character. Good for like a strength joke mm-hmm. that it's, is funny. And there are a lot of characters like that. Um, the gnomes were actually pretty hilarious because yep. they're like intelligent and, and diabolical. And then there's Schmebby lock. Who's the only word he could say. And at one point, I think one of the gnomes says it's the only word you can say Schmebby lock. And he goes, Schmebby lock. And just like, so there's a lot of random things that are very, very funny. You know, Lazy Susan, the waitress, <gasps> who has the eye. Yep. Played by Jennifer Coolidge. Mm-hmm. The mom. I do like how all of Mabel's fantasy guys have the same sort of look to them. Mm-hmm. Now, several times. Who go off and live at the woods at one point. Yes. They're sure like living in the woods. But, of course, they, they clearly aren't going to. I mean, even Candy says they're not going to last a week. And then at the end credits, Stan is like, someone's in our garbage, and it's one of them. Yeah. He's like, oh, it's just a pretty boy in the garbage. What? Yeah. I really did like the fact that there was a point in the very first episode of season two where they brought in um, two federal agents. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe because Alex Hirsch decided to end the series – that they realized they had to drop that subplot because it was just not going to go anywhere. So they did this whole, it was one of the most clever ways to do it. They had, because it just made sense within the show where they had basically like 
all of them, uh, the entire federal raid that was happening on the Mystery Shack, they unleashed some device that made everybody forget why they were there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the uh, agents was Nick Offerman, by the way. That he was, yep. Swanson. Nathan Fillion was Preston Northwest? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of other characters in there that were that were really, aside from just, like, you know, things that you... I, I was a big fan of the whole travel aspect of it when there were those time travel episodes with the time baby and the... Mm-hmm. And the the bald guy, Blendon Blandon. Yeah, Blendon Blandon. But yeah, it was just if, if the thing about the show is that you could just sit down and um, I liked the man, the manliness. Oh <gasps> yes, the the, the the Viking type of guys who were up in the mountains and stuff. Yep. There was the manliness testing. Um, one of my favorite beats of the end of the show was like Gideon gets thrown in prison. At the after this first season, and he's in prison for most of the second season, but he has basically become the boss of the prison. That he is. And in the finale, he is like there's this whole Mad Max portion where Gideon's leading that pack of ex-prisoners, and they're still like his best friends, even after everything's back to normal. <laughs> and I I like that bit. So there's like little bits of, yeah, there's like little bits and, and pieces of that. But I you know, I like the man um the man challenge guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alfred Molina was the multi bear. Yes, the multi bear. Yeah, which is or, crazy. Or the the unicorn thing. <gasps> oh my the, gosh! Where, where the, the unicorn? She's like, you're not pure of heart. You're not pure of heart. And they yes. finally come at her like, are you still pulling this pure of heart con? You know, our our horns are only good for like you know flashing and playing uh, rave music or something. Yep. And then they get into this big battle. Yeah. I liked the fact that one of the portions of the whole finale battle was that they basically turned the Mystery Shack into Voltron. Oh, right. Yep. Oh, it's so great. It's just it's it's all this crazy stuff that happens. But the show is the show is very aware of itself, but it's never overly aware or too smart for its own good. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that I really really enjoyed about it. What were some of your favorite episodes? The one where they get trapped in the in the convenience store. Oh right. Uh, yep. Especially because Mabel has that Mabel. Oh my gosh! Yeah, she trips out <laughs> she trips on that out candy, candy stuff, which is basically what what is that called? That dip that we have that sugar dip. Oh, like a uh, fun dip. Yes, yeah, it's like, basically that. She she basically, which again I've seen on other shows. To to coin a to coin the title of an episode of episode of South Park, The Simpsons did it. But again, you can take those common tropes and have them have them work. Right. You know? the the one I just mentioned, Dipper versus Manliness. Yep. The one where he clones himself. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he has to do all these things, and it's is that the Summerween one? No, no. it's like the Double Dippers or something. No, Double Dipper. Yeah. Something uh, like that. Yeah, Double Dipper. Uh, I think Summerween is the one you're talking about, isn't it? That they get. Trapped in the convenience store? No, that was called the inconveniencing. Oh, okay. The store is haunted by the ghosts of the old people who used to run it and hated teenagers. Uh, I did enjoy Bo- Boss Mabel. Mm-hmm. I liked the the bottomless pit episode only because it was yes. just this excuse for them to tell stories of flashback stories and stuff like that. And and where they have to fight the Gideon robot at the end of the first season, and Mabel finally finds the use for the grappling hook that she's been looking for. Yep. The second season gets more has more episodes that deal with Bill and all that. The sock opera one, I think, is one of my personal favorites mm-hmm. because it's so out there. 
and it's it's a little bit crazy. But then there are some that are a little bit that are fine on their own, but I could take or leave. Like the one with the mini golf. Yep. And the oh gosh, the, and the one where where Seuss falls in love with the video game girl. <gasps> yeah, Seuss and the real girl, which is like Lars and the real girl. Yeah. Yep. The Society of the Blind Eye one is really good. Mm-hmm. Where they have the memory again. Seeding things that come into handy later in the show. They right, have a gun. Yep. You shoot the person and it takes away part of their memory. Mm-hmm. And there's this like stonecutter sort of society, secret society that's doing that to people in Gravity Falls. And you and you come to the end, realize that the old hillbilly. Yeah, McGucket. He was a genius scientist. Not only that, he was, he was Ford's partner. Mm-hmm. And not only that. And I love the reference because unless you get it, 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 it's it's just a great reference. He says, I called. He was trying to make his fortune by building personal computers in his garage. And then he called them up and he got them up to Gravity Falls because Ford was like, well, that's a useless endeavor. Yeah. And this was in the early 80s. And I'm like, that is a brilliant joke. Yep. So I'm like, so he, he took Steve Jobs or Wozniak or whatever and got him away from there. And then McGuckin kept using the memory thing on himself to the point where he went nuts and was this crazy old hillbilly McGucket. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 There's only in Dungeons and Dungeons and more Dungeons. Um, like I said, that is the Shag episode, mm-hmm. the Gene Hendricks episode. You guys should really should watch it. I think you'd really enjoy it. And then, and Weird Mageddon in itself, the whole, all three parts of it. Are yeah. Just, that, that's, that's how to, that's a finale. Mm-hmm. You know? Do you think that'd be tough to watch though, if you had never seen the series before? We're, yeah. You, this is, that's not a, that's not something you can come in on. The standalone one. Yeah. yeah you, you, as a standalone, like you have to start, you don't have to start with episode one. Mm-hmm. You could probably pick something up in the middle of season two, like I did. But yeah, I would not. I would at least. <laughs> I would. I would not. I would at least start somewhere early in season two if you're going to go. If you're going to go start late in the series, but no, you you can't pick up um, the last episode of the series and understand what the heck's going on aside from enjoying what was on the screen. You know, there's only 40 episodes of the show. Yeah. So it's not a hard series to get into. And mm-hmm. this isn't eight seasons or now 10 seasons of the X-Files. Right. Which got confused. As somebody who did not watch that show from the beginning and spent a couple of years watching that show, like right in the middle and really did not understand the, the conspiracy theories and mythology behind it and really just only appreciated the monster of the week episodes because I was just confused in there. It's kind of like that, you know, I'm grateful that there are only 40 episodes of the show and the creator wanted to end the show because he didn't want the, um, he did, he wanted to go out on top. He did not want to go out before, after it had become stale. Which I think is a lesson. And you're talking about Gravity Falls here. Yeah, Gravity Falls. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think that's just such a great lesson, right? Why keep running, you know, if mm-hmm. you're, you're going to run out of things and why not end it, right, with a big bang and, and have yeah. something very impactful. And I think while I miss the show, you know, even though I watched it in the spring, so it seems uh, fresher for me, uh, I like that fact. I like that I'm not watching episodes I'm not caring about and it ended with, with a big finale that I did care about. Yeah, and and like I said, the finale of that show, it it can get to you, especially if you're invested in the characters. It hit all the right notes, right? And um, and throughout the show, the the, the it hits it hits a lot of the right notes. 
the way you can, the fact that you can do a coming of age story in the midst of all of this crazy supernatural ghost hunters conspiracy theory, <laughs> demon fighting stuff is mm-hmm. is a testament to how well this was written and um, and 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 acted and performed. Yep. For me, my favorite episodes, one of them I absolutely love is Fight Fighters. <laughs> and it involves, well, Robbie and Dipper are about to have a fight. Mm-hmm. Basically, he did like a, a cheat on an arcade game. And one of the fighters came out like Street Fighter wise. Yes. And just the way he's animated, they did a high five and Dipper's like, ow, your pixels are sharp. Like, yeah. you know, things like that. And... One of my favorite parts was when his fighter needed a, it's like Rumble something, McRumbleston or something, but uh, he needed a power-up, and Dipper's looking around, he's like, all I have is this taco, and he's like, place it on the ground, and then he, you know, it's very, I don't know, I really like that one. Bottomless Pit, I second that one, Mm -hmm. I just think it's funny, and then at the very end, I remember that Stan... Grungle Sam falls again. And so the end credit scene is like him just like floating through. But I like those little random stories. The last Mabel Corn. I think, you know, I can't neglect the Time Traveler's Pig just because that is the introduction of Waddles. And he is, you know, very important. And then Land Before Swine when Grunkle Sam loses Waddles. And that's oh, yeah. also. And so there's that sort of tension between. Uh, Mabel and Grunkle Stan, because, you know, did he not care about her enough to watch Waddles? And then there's the tension between Seuss and Dipper, because Dipper feels like Seuss messes up a lot of stuff and, and he doesn't want to take him along. So yeah. there, there are some of those tense stories, you know, uh, between the family, you know, depending on how you define family, which I think, again, you know, one of those themes. Um, mm-hmm. But but it all it all works out in the end and, and all of these people grow together in their relationships. So. Yeah, just a great series. Oh, so yeah. thank you, sir, for recommending it to me because I wouldn't have known otherwise. Hey, no problem. Well, I guess final question before we move on. Would you recommend it to people and would you watch it again? Yes and yes. Okay. Um, I would recommend it to people even if you don't have kids. Mm-hmm. I would say Brett was about eight because it's really only been in the last six to nine months or so that we watched it. I would say that eight, nine, ten years old, that's your like you don't want to show this to a five or six year old because there are and and if it's to a slightly older kid you have to make sure the kid is okay with scary images because there is a lot of scary stuff in this yes some of the monsters and stuff are right out of some sort of lovecraft type of you know crazy oh yeah thing. and and i think some of the writers came from adventure time so it's it's on like the the way the monsters are shown are very on par with like an adventure time and stuff. So it's that sort of audience. But even as an adult, you know, I watched some of them with Brett when we were I was doing the rewatch, and I watched some of them on my on my own. It, either both ways, it's, I would highly recommend it. And like I said, if you have a Hulu Plus account and you've been streaming stuff on Hulu, it's you can watch all of them, and uh, and which is awesome because uh, that's something worth streaming as opposed to uh, sitting down and being forced to watch the umpteenth episode of Clarence or oh or something or or, uh, or or 
SpongeBob or whatever. Yeah. So, but no, I, I would highly recommend it, especially since it's not very long either. No, no, you not know, at all. it's yeah. it's not twenty seven seasons of The Simpsons or something. So. Right? Yeah, that's sometimes overwhelming. Uh, yeah, I agree. I would recommend, and I would watch again. I mean, I was watching a couple of them just this morning to to get prepared for this recording and I think you know just like what you said I think it's for people of any age I think you know for the kids some things are going to go over their heads which I mean that was probably all our experiences anyways there's certainly jokes from the Justice League that I didn't understand until I rewatched them yeah yeah um and then you know just just like we said before there you can hop in hop out and then you know obviously there are ties throughout the entire series uh, but if you just want to get a taste you can pop in on on any of the ones that we recommended but yeah well we're rounding it out now so we're going to move on to literature recommendations so tom do you have one um yeah i can i can recommend a couple um i've for the purposes of another podcast that i do i read the david morell novel first blood which is the basis for the very first rambo movie Mm -hmm. Uh, it's actually a really good book um it's very crazy testosterone but it is (laughs) it is rambo is this vet who is obviously experiencing ptsd and he kills some people and is it's a manhunt between him and the sheriff and and so it's one of those sort of very very (laughs) Chuck Dixon could have written it, you know, like one of those, those stories um, for something that's, that's a little bit less of like, you know, Stallone yelling and screaming. Uh, I recently read the novel. Uh, this is where I leave you by John Tropper, I think is the name of the author. And it's this funny, it was made into a movie about a year ago, which I haven't seen is sitting on my right now um, with a Tina Fey was in it uh, oh. where a family gets together to sit Shiva because the father has died. Mm. And um, so in a big chill sort of way, they all get together. And this family is incredibly dysfunctional. And it's narrated by uh, one of the sons who is currently going through a divorce. And it's, it has moments where you're like, you get very, very tired of the characters, but it's funny in a lot of ways. And, um, and it's just one of those crazy dysfunctional family sort of, comedy drama type of things which are which when you're in your 30s it's you know you, you get on some level even if your family is nowhere near as dysfunctional as the family in that thing and uh one book that i have not read but i do want to give a shout out to my sister because she bought this for my birthday oh i thought like, you wrote it i'm like no, no, oh no. my goodness no <laughs> um she wrote uh she she gave me a a, a hardcover illustrated edition of the Princess Bride, Ooh. and I've never read it. She's read it, and I had asked for it, so that was a birthday present. So I'm going to sit down and read it at, at some point because I'm I'm really excited about that. So um, I've never read it. I can't say whether or not it's good, but I would recommend it because I love that movie. Uh, and my wife gave me a copy of Ready Player One, which I've heard really really good things about. So those are my next two books to read. When I'm not reading um, Fundamentals of Curriculum Design or uh, Linguistics for the classes I'm taking this summer. I would not recommend a linguistics textbook to your your listeners. I don't think they'd enjoy it. (laughs) Well, I I feel like mine are the opposite of yours, maybe. Uh, First of all is Rosemary's Baby. (laughs) I want to read that, though. It's horrible. I want to read that. By year 11, so I won't 
spoil it, I guess. Uh, maybe you people should know what it is. So Rosemary, this is the Amazon, you know, little summary there. Rosemary Woodhouse and her struggling actor husband Guy. As an editorial, I'll say Guy is probably the worst husband in literature, but, you know, I've not read all of literature. So they move into the Bramford, an old New York City apartment building with an ominous reputation and mostly elderly residents. Neighbors Roman and Minnie Castavet soon come nosing around to welcome the Woodhouses to the building, and despite Rosemary's reservations about their eccentricity and the weird noises that she keeps hearing, her husband takes a special shine to them. Shortly after Guy lands a plum Broadway role, Rosemary becomes pregnant, and the Cassavets start taking a special interest in her welfare. As the sickened Rosemary becomes increasingly isolated, she begins to suspect that the Cassavet circle is not what it seems. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I know. I've, I've seen parts of the film. Okay. If, if anybody to this knows that Rosemary's baby is like a very famous horror film with Mia Farrow directed by Roman Polanski. Um, and I saw bits and pieces of it when I was on TV. I've always wanted to see the movie and read the book. It's just, it's on my, I'm going to get around to that at some point. So, yes, I, uh, I read a critical scene that, I mean, starts off the baby, the conception scene. We'll go with that. The conception scene right before going to church. And I regretted it (laughs) because I was like, it was just such a terrible image. And then I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I know who she is pregnant with. Yes. Yeah. I didn't want to spoil it for anyone else who's not seen. I mean, it was a good because you're reading The Shining or you want to read The Shining. That's another one on my list. Yeah. Yeah. So this one is, I mean, it's one of those where you can't put it down. You're, You're very intrigued. You're kind of shaking your fist at Rosemary because you want her to figure things out. And then you also want to slap Guy. But it is, it's very suspenseful as well. So it's a good book. Uh, the other thing I read was Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. I was a little turned off by Dickens after reading Great Expectations, so I wasn't sure about this, but I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this one. So here's the summary again from Amazon. When Arthur Clennam returns to England after many years abroad, he takes a kindly interest in Amy Dorrit, a.k.a. Little Dorrit, his mother's seamstress, and in the affairs of Amy's father, William Dorrit, a man of shabby grandeur, long imprisoned for debt in the Marshall Sea prison. As Arthur soon discovers, the dark shadow of the prison stretches far beyond its walls to affect the lives of many, from the kindly Mr. Panks, the reluctant rent collector of Bleeding Heart Yard, and the tipsy, garrulous Flora Finching, to Myrtle, an unscrupulous financier, and the bureaucratic barnacles in the circumlocution office. So I liked it much better than Great Expectations, and there is sort of some social commentaries, as I think Charles Dickens is want to do with the debt and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed it. I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. It seemed like it was happy, happy. And then of course something happens and it's all sad, 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 but it ended up with a happy ending in case you are concerned about those things at all. Do you have a bad relationship with Charles Dickens? I do have a bad relationship with <laughs> Charles Dickens, and, and I've already had this conversation with Professor Allen. So oh, okay. The past, so. Do you like any of his works? I really enjoyed A Christmas Carol. Okay. A couple of years I taught seniors, which was focused on British literature. I, I did teach that book right around the winter uh, in, in December. Um, it's not it's a novella, basically, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I've read A Tale of Two Cities twice and didn't like it either time. And I've read Great Expectations twice. Liked it more the second time around. 
that's because the first time around I had to read it as a freshman in high school, and the second time around I read it as a junior in college. So I think I just understood it better. But even then I was like, yeah, it's not so much with this. So yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of Charles Dickens. I really like David Copperfield. Um, So I enjoyed that, but I didn't like Great Expectations. I felt like it was another version of David Copperfield. Oh, okay. And I don't know if I had read Great Expectations first, if I would have liked... David Copperfield less. I don't know. But that's just how it happened. And so I really like that. Don't like Great Expectations. Tale of Two Cities, eh. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But Little Dort, I, I enjoy it. I still have one more left on the list, and it's all over Twist. So I'm sort of saving that one. But Well, Tom, it has been lovely. Can yes. you please tell people? It really has. No, it and has. We're below four hours. So this is good. We are. Uh, can you tell people how best to support you? I have two podcasts that are over on the Two True Freaks Network. One of them is called In Country. Mm -hmm. I'm taking an issue-by-issue look at the Marvel Comics War series, The Nom. Uh, As of this recording, I'm on about episode 71, which means I've got about 30 more episodes or so left of that series uh, where I'm – because I break out uh, every once in a while to cover a movie or do an interview with a creator or something uh, all surrounding the Vietnam War. That – is it's one of the shows and the other show that I'm on, uh, which is, I guess you could call my main podcast is called pop culture affidavit. And once a month or sometimes a little more often than that, I sit down and cover something about popular culture that, and it's a completely random topic. Um, I've done some mini series. I'm wrapping up a series I did called 80 years of DC comics, which cover the other non superhero genre comics that DC has published. Uh, And later this year, I'm going to be, starting a series called origin story where i'm going to take a look at the comics that i read 30 years ago issue by issue uh in kind of in real time on the dates that they came out you can find that uh at two truefreaks.com but also my uh, pop culture affidavit is a blog uh, and a podcast at, at pop culture affidavit.com I was going to say something funny, but now I've forgotten what it was. Well, you'll be on you'll be on one of the next episodes as soon as I can finish. Uh, and I have to sort through all that Stella and Alan footage to footage? use. Footage. But um, what about uh, the episode that you recorded with Shag half a year ago? That's coming out too because okay. I, I finally recorded the episode I needed to record before that. <laughs> okay. That was holding it up. I was supposed to record with somebody else. They were becoming impossible to get in touch with and i finally just kind of decided to do the episode on my own so i could get it done because the shag episode is just sitting there waiting yeah i know it had nothing to do with shag and everything to do (laughs) with um with with somebody who i don't want to drag his name through the mud so oh okay well as always you can send any questions or comments to backroll.oracle at gmail.com if you have personal complaints against tom that he likes Corey, aka starfire or that he dislikes batman and robin you can shoot me an email uh, like the show on Thanks. Facebook, <laughs> like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Backroll the Oracle. What is your Twitter handle? What is your Twitter handle? Do you want people to know that or no? Is that personal? It's just Tom Panneries. Okay, in case um, you want to follow Tom. Yeah. yeah, although I tweet so much about teaching lately that you I've don't, seen that. Yeah, I, I I need to. I either need to separate them or just kind of get away from the teaching Twitter thing because it frustrates me to no end anyway. Well, I like the little 
things that happen. I, I, I can relate to them. It's a snarky comment. <laughs> yeah. uh, follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support TBU and buy that BTO by going on the BatmanUniverse.net and clicking on the support TBU link. And once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. So this was a well-rounded episode. We've got Contagion and we have Gravity Falls. But this is... This is the you know the reason why you have your own show because you can do whatever you want. Uh, do you want to sign us out, Tom? Bye bye bye. <laughs> oh gosh, you'll like it when it comes out. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? He's looking at it! He's looking at it! Uh, do you like me? Yes. Definitely. Absolutely. I rigged it! Mabel? I know you're going through your whole boy crazy phase, but I think you're kind of overdoing it with the crazy part. What? <laughs> Come on, Dipper. This is our first summer away from home. It's my big chance to have an epic summer romance. Yeah, but do you need to flirt with every guy you meet? My name is Mabel, but you can call me the girl of your dreams. I'm joking! <laughs> oh my gosh, you like turtles? I like turtles too. What is happening here? Come one, come all, to the Mattress Prince's kingdom of savings. Take me with you. Ah! Mock all you want, brother, but I got a good feeling about this summer. I wouldn't be surprised if the man of my dreams walked through that door right now. Uh, 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 Not good. Ow. Oh, why? We need to get a couch down there and, and another chair, but we're working on it. <laughs> and a surfboard. She got a surfboard. Yes. Yeah, because you need a surfboard. <laughs> oh, well, do you have any questions about what's going to happen? No, I'm assuming we're doing Contagion first and then uh, uh, Gravity Falls second. <laughs> yes. That, yeah. That's, yep. can, can you give me one second? I got to be going to. I have That's to go blow my nose, yeah. So okay. Back. <laughs> all right. That's all going in, you know. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I, I'm just kidding. Well, you called me and I was in... You ever have to sneeze yet the sneeze won't come out? Uh-huh. That's exactly what was happening when you called. Oh, no. So I was like in mid-half sneeze. So. That's when you think of a cow and it goes away. Okay. <laughs> Yay! Okay, well, I guess I'll get this started before okay. four hours pass.
You back yet? No, okay. We do. Um, you can cut this out. Are, are, are we doing a literature <laughs> recommendation? I have it. Okay, yeah, cool, if, you're, if you're willing to. Oh yeah, I, I okay. Have to. Oh, yeah, I mean you're an English teacher. Yeah. yeah. So. No! No! Oh, they're hugging. So let me get this straight. Your plan is to teach this bear to ride a bicycle? Nah, come on. Everyone's seen a bicycle riding bear. No, no. I'm gonna teach this bear to drive. And the yellow light means speed up. Uh-oh. What seems to be the problem, officers? Now there'd better be a darn good explanation for this. Oh, there is. You see, I'm a very old man. Not long for this earth. And the doctors assigned me a seeing eye bear to drive me to the hospital in case of emergencies. Is that right? Then where's your doctor's note? Why, it's right here inside my jacket. <clears throat> ah, there you go. Well, I can't argue with Dr. Medicine. To the hospital, honey pants. <laughs> 